Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we welcome Joanna Quinn and Les Mills, the team behind Affairs of the Art. Hello, hello. Bonjour, mes amis. Welcome to uh, another Squiggly podcast from the 2021 Annecy Festival, if only. (laughs) Nope, still in Bristol. I mean, there's worse places to be, Ben. I mean, there's better places to be. There's Annecy, but, you know, there's worse places to be as well. Um, How how are you enjoying your digital Annecy? It is what it is. I don't think anyone really had much luck getting out from England. I guess it's not, we're not really set up for that yet, are we? A few people I know from other places in Europe have managed to make it over. And, you know, we're getting photos coming through on our social media of people having a whale of a time. I'm sure being very responsible and socially distanced, blah, blah, blah. That's the torture of it all. I've been doing a lot of meetings uh, for, for MIFA. And, uh, you know, talking to like short film distributors and all that sort of stuff. And when they're at Annecy, they can't wait to turn the computer around and wave it at the lake. <laughs> like, oh, you, you see, I'm in this beautiful palace in the sunshine and here's a, a crystal clear lake, which you haven't seen for two years. Uh, enjoy the view. Uh, the pixelated view is the Wi-Fi disappears, but the colours are tantalising enough to make you weep. Get a screen grab. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's uh, it's been sad looking at on on Facebook at all the people that have managed to crawl underneath the uh, barbed wire with a uh, a test in hand and say I've I'm fine. Let me let me through to the cinemas. And everyone's also saying things like, "Oh, it's great. You can just turn up at the cinemas, and they just you know there's plenty of room." And it's like, wow, you you've you've turned up. This might be the best year yet for Annecy. <laughs> there's no queues <laughs> or or there's no kind of you know. Dorman stopping you from getting in just as you get to the the front of the queue. Um, but yeah, I've managed to catch quite a few things. I'm quite happy with uh, with my Annecy experience, as happy as I can be with the god-awful online system. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I have to say, like, Annecy was probably the first, like, big festival I did the online experience with last year. I guess maybe I'd done Stuttgart before... Uh, but I forget if that was actually like the festival interface or if that was like a jury interface. Hmm. But I have to say, like, since last year's Annecy, with each festival that took it on, each, each one kind of improved on it a bit more. And by the time we got to, you know, stuff like Encounters and Manchester and Cardiff, it was all pretty fluid. And, you know, the, the most recent Stuttgart just happened. That was pretty fluid too. This year's Annecy doesn't really feel much different from last year's Annecy. I think they they just kind of use the same system, more or less. They use the same system, but this year, when you press play on a film, it's automatically muted, which is the natural the natural uh, way to watch a film is on mute, isn't it? Obviously. I must have missed something there. I'm not the uh, cinephile I thought I was. <laughs> Silent film. That's the classy kind. Yeah, I'm supposed to be playing my own piano in the background, aren't I? Plinky-plonking away. <laughs> Well, you know, there are filmmakers who, like, they do special versions of their films in black and white to make them more elevated, mm. like the Parasite guy. So maybe that's the next thing, is is releasing them as silent films. Yeah. we got to get ahead of this curve. 
I mean, there have been times in person at Annecy when I would be watching the short film programs in a cinema with people and be thinking to myself, you know, what would actually be really great is the option to play this at twice the speed (laughs) or just skip it altogether. So in that respect, I actually quite like some elements of the online viewing experience. You know, invariably, when it comes to the Annecy official selection, uh, I guess some of it just goes over my head. Mm-hmm. Time will tell. You know, the more I kind of get in the weeds of film curation, and uh, of course you'll you'll be familiar with this, doing a festival of your own, the old guard of film festivals and uh, film directors, I don't want to be shitty, but I think it's time for them to, you know, float off on a big <laughs> chunk of ice. I, I, I completely agree there needs to be a kind of refresh, but I think that refresh, it doesn't matter who it is. But when an, a filmmaker has has some miles on the clock, shall we say, yep. and then just gets lazy because they know they're going to get into a festival because of their name, that's the problem. Yeah. When you get a filmmaker that's been around the block a few times and is still inspiring and he's still kind of knocking it out the park and he's still got stories to tell and has still got things to show, I'm always delighted, but you're right. There are a few people in this program <laughs> <laughs> that have just like, you know, maybe they were, they were, oh, we've got like another 10 films we need to find, but we've got the deadline for print. So uh, let's just look at the spreadsheet. Ah, yeah, yeah, I've heard of them. They'll do. Yeah. Uh, that's not what's happened. <laughs> that's never what happens with curation. But you get you kind of get the impression that the name comes before the, the talent. Yeah. And I've seen films that were in this program and I see films in every film festival's program. You know, no two film festivals are alike. That's the beauty of film festivals. You get a completely different flavour at Anima as you do that from from you do at Stuttgart, at Manchester, at Cardiff. You know, we all have different tastes. We all have different um, ways of showing films and, and different films that we show, obviously, and that creates different atmospheres. But when I look at the official selection at Annecy, I sometimes think, wow. I mean, we've rejected films from Math. That are that would have you know sailed away a chance at the, at the competition, um, you know, and, and rejected for reasons you know not just because they're terrible, but because they wouldn't fit in the program or whatever. And you've decided to put these films in. Blimey, what's going on here? That being said, there have been plenty of films that have delighted me at Annecy's past, where people have really screwed up their nose at. So it really is just a matter of attitude and where you are in your head at the time. I think sometimes Annecy gets it. And I think a lot of that is to do with the cinema experience as well. Obviously, Annecy gets it. It's the world's best animation festival. When I when I sort of knew that they got it one year was there was a particular program, and we must have talked about this on the podcast before, and it was very kind of dry and dull, well, dull for me in terms of like grey films and uh, heavy depressing films just when you were kind of you know contemplating life and <laughs> what you were doing with your life in that cinema because you felt like you had a black cloud above your head screwing on a greg yeah. by uh, by will anderson and uh, ainsley henderson came on and it's a minute and a half or something like that of just pure joy and pure comedy that just really picked everybody up oh that was a great uh, palate cleanser it was like a palette sandblaster. It was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> if people have been following the Annecy social media stuff, they might have seen a video they posted up that Joanna Quinn filmed 30 years ago. 
And it's it's a real treat. It's like it's just a montage of just all these faces of animation, but you know, in their sprightly youth. And I really found that heartening because I have a ton of B-roll from when we were where we'd go to Annecy and we would shoot for YouTube videos and whatnot. And uh, there's some really great stuff that I'm kind of looking forward to embarrassing people with in 22, 23 years from now. <laughs> but I remember there's some great bits of business with uh, Will and Ainsley and some of the then new faces of animation. And it's just sort of nice to see, because as, as I start to get older and see the people around me get older as well and really start to establish themselves in animation, like people I went to uni with. And there's a, there's a real sense of like pride about that and seeing where we're making our mark and in what respect we are making our mark. It's just a nice thing to see. And it's, it's, it's great to kind of see that journey in reverse a bit, I suppose, mm. when it comes to Joanna's video, seeing people who are kind of not quite yet as firmly established as they are. Yeah, there's little snippets of like Peter Lord talking to John Hallis and you get an impression of that kind of, you know, passing of the torch and, and all that mm. type of stuff. I think this year as well, obviously, it's, you know, we've both been in the squiggly game for a decade. This is, uh, quite a kind of, quite a, quite a sort of, uh, a milestone for us personally. And I, I, I think back to that first anesthesy of, of kind of trying to grab interviews with everybody. And I think, I'm pretty sure that it was the year of the Eagle Man Stag. The first, uh, the first Annecy, and obviously, um, we talk about people kind of growing with with, uh, with 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 the years going by and everything. And um, obviously, uh, Mikey, please, and, and Dan Ojari, and um, you know, the Parabella have joined forces with Annecy, and that's one of the one of the uh, films that we've seen a kind of sneak peek of at Annecy this year. And that's that's nice seeing that kind of you know how, how where things go. Uh, and it's also nice to know that you know you're interviewing somebody because. I, I knew that I knew that was a good film because they've gone on to do better films. <laughs> it's kind of helps you, your ego out a little bit as well. <laughs> and then there are people who were doing amazing stuff and they just stopped. Yeah, they just went somewhere else and, and found another direction. And it's sort of, it's almost unfair that someone could make such a, a mark with one film and then be like, "All right, I'm done." Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll go into theatre or live action or something completely different. Oh, there's been times along the way you've you've mentioned as well, like you know, the first time interviewing Rebecca Sugar, when and and she was very shy and yeah, yeah, yeah that was uh, there was something about not wanting to have the video posted, but yeah, we did talk to her, and there's an article on Squiggly, but it was right at the beginning of this new Cartoon Network show, and it was just one of a slate of Cartoon Network shows that ended up just being this phenomenon. And that's a really nice thing to kind of be able to have been there for. That's probably the element I do miss, I guess. It's not so much the programs in a theater as much as, yeah. you know, the barbecues and the, the junkets and the stuff. It's like, you know, do, do some nice coverage for our new show and we'll give you a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> I'd have done it f without the sandwich. I'm quids <laughs> in here. <laughs> what of the, what of the Annecy program? This time round, have you seen that's kind of in the work in progress or uh, up and coming that you've looked at and gone, yeah, that, that looks great. I know I know, Netflix have been all over the Annecy kind of work in progress uh, program this year, haven't they? Netflix are really, um, there's a, they're a big presence here. Uh, one I just saw actually before we hopped on the call 
not Netflix, but worth a mention. You talked to Eric O recently. Mm. He's doing a VR thing or an immersive film thing. I just saw a presentation for that. It's called Namu. And that looks pretty interesting. It's sort of, you know, there's this ever fluctuating symbiosis between animated short film and immersive storytelling. You know, it's taken various forms over the last seven, eight years. And, uh, you know, you, you, Never quite sure which one is going to take hold or for how long. But this one definitely looks nice, you know, and he's got the chops when it comes to giving things that really nice, painterly, almost fine art aesthetic. So Namu, I, I dug. He did talk slightly about it in the interview. Um, yeah. he, he kind of mentioned its its origins and, and things like that. So you can watch that on YouTube if you want, or you can scroll through this podcast feed and, and, and uh, yeah. We do have a, that interview with Erico, so get stuck in there as well. If you've if you missed the uh, Annecy boat, I'll listen to it anyway. So yeah, that was one. Uh, another thing I saw this afternoon wasn't a, a work in progress or anything. It was just a kind of chat, but it was great fun. It was with it was called Animation Embodied, mm. and that was Jane Pilling talking with Martina Scarpelli and Joanna Quinn and Sydney Bauman, just about the films that they do and the kind of themes that tie them together. And, you know, they're just, it's a, it's a great group of people to listen to. You know, they all do work that kind of centers around the female body and its perception and its role, I guess, societally, and how people kind of pick it apart and uh, ambush it. And Joanna Quinn, of course, has um, really led the charge as far as making films that bring that subject to the forefront in a kind of not aggressive way, but in a quite upfront way. Sigby Bauman, of course, does it in a very sort of bawdy way. Martina Scapelli's films are quite uncomfortable, but thoughtful, and there are some harsh realities, I think, across all of them as filmmakers. Well, Sydney did a thing recently, actually, because she, I think, wrapped up the uh, animation production portion of her new feature film, uh, My Love Affair with Marriage, which is a project we've talked about on intimate animation. And that, I think, is nearing the finish line now. It's, it's well under post-production. I think she mentioned in this presentation that they've just got sound left to do. Be a very long in the making as an independent feature length film would be, uh, but really looking forward to that. Oh, that reminds me actually a, a bit of non Annecy uh, news, but I'll probably forget otherwise, so I'll mention it now. Did you see that Robert Morgan's doing a feature film? I heard, yes. That's pretty good. Yeah. But it's about fucking time. I remember him like <laughs> talking about how that was like a big bucket list thing of his right when um, you know we were first talking to him. So that's uh, really nice to see that come along. I wonder how many toenail clippings he's going to need for a feature film. I think he's going to have to like have a drive. <laughs> yeah. Just get Thought everyone all. <laughs> crowdfund fingernails and toenails. <laughs> so I, don't, I think it might be called Stop Motion. Oh, right. Okay. Stars ailing Franciosi as Ella Blake, a stop motion animator struggling to control her demons after the loss of her overbearing mother, who embarks upon the creation of a film that becomes a battleground for her sanity. As Ella's mind starts to fracture, the characters in her project take on a life of their own. I mean, that immediately evokes a whole ton of Robert Morgan films. <laughs> so, yeah. Her gooey, <laughs> pink, fleshy, veined characters. <laughs> so he did a bunch of stop-motion segments for a feature film that sounded, from when he described it, quite similar to that premise. And I get the impression that a lot of it was cut out of the film. Mm. So this would be a, a good way of, of bringing that, I guess, together. Well, that's going to be great. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. 
But yeah, back to uh, back to Arcee. Uh Presentation that uh, you alluded to earlier, uh, Robin Robin, new Arben Netflix project, mm. which um, I think is going to be November, late November released. Uh, that looks fantastic. It's Mikey Please and Dan Ajari. What did you make of that? I think it looks absolutely fantastic. It, it does kind of irk me seeing that the four millionth project to come out of Arben that's not done in plasticine the headlines still read, Ardman not working in plasticine for upcoming projects. <laughs> and you're like, oh, for God's sake, come on. <laughs> and, and, and and slightly, you know, that it is put forward as an Ardman project. Obviously, it is an Ardman project. They've got the Ardman support. They've got the, you know, which is amazing. Ardman are an amazing company. It's no doubt a dream come true for uh, for Dan and Mikey to be working with, with Ardman and all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, I'd like to see a bit more of the kind of spotlight on Parabella for this type of thing. You know, they've kind of, uh, it's their, it's their vision. It's their kind of, uh, you know, it's their world. And, um, you know, Ardman are just helping them bring it to fruition by the sound of things. And I just, I think, you know, Parabella need a bit of a round of applause as well. That's all. Um, that's the only negative I can take away from this absolutely <laughs> blisteringly wonderful uh, animated film that's coming up. Um, which has, you know, fantastic performances and just great animation. And, yeah, it's, I'm really looking forward to it. In a lot of respects, I think it's being touted as a new Netflix project more than Ardman mm. and more than, more Ardman than Parabella. But they're certainly putting Mikey and Dan at the, you know, front and centre for it. Mm. Now that you mention it, I haven't actually heard Parabella be yeah. mentioned, so I'm not sure if, you know, they're just operating as directors on it or as a team on it, uh, under the umbrella of Ardman, or if they're actually, you know, it's a collaboration in that sense. Uh, certainly, Ardman seems to be at the helm in terms of production facilities and production roles and that sort of thing. Yeah, obviously, working with Sarah Cox as the, uh, you know, producer and things like that, it's not that it's, yeah, absolutely, Ardman have their place within the project. Um, it'd just be nice to hear about Parabella a bit as well, you know, that's all. That's just me being... I can't just give good news, Ben. I've got a whinge. I've got to, you know, I've got to put a, a whingy spin on it. Yeah. So, like I say, I think uh, November that will be uh, coming out. I th- will definitely be doing uh, more on that as it comes together. Definitely. Another stop motion, felty looking film, uh, not film project, I guess, a three part series for Netflix as part of their adult animation slate, which was interesting. Like the um, they announced a bunch of adult animations that are upcoming. And provided some uh, little sort of sneak peeks. So there's uh, Inside Job, which is a 2D series. Yeah. Uh, looks kind of fun, a sort of conspiracy nut job guy and his daughter. And yeah, they only showed a little clip of it, but it was a uh, Christian Slater being crazy. That's Alex Hirsch, isn't it, from uh, Gravity Falls as the exec producer um, of the show as well. So um, yeah, and obviously the fans of Gravity Falls know all about the kind of conspiracy stuff that you like to weave throughout that show. So um, this seems like, uh, yeah, great stuff um, for uh, uh, for that particular show. And uh, Cheyenne Taikuchi, mm, that's right, who I yes. think was also of Gravity Falls. So uh, they clearly like working together. That's always mm-hmm. good. An extraordinarily necessary big mouth spinoff <laughs> called Human Resources, which will probably be quite fun. The thing with Big Mouth, and I do like a lot of elements of it. It's come up a few times. 
it felt like Big Mouth felt this sort of obligation to justify the utter goofiness of some of the characters. And the spinoff in, you know, the tradition of great spinoffs of the past has basically abandoned that element from what I could tell. And it's just the monsters. So it's a kind of Monsters Inc. meets The Office meets Big Mouth sort of thing. Right. Whereas Big Mouth, like, there was a kind of, like, ambiguity as to whether or not they're even real monsters or if they're sort of projections and their role is pretty justified as far as those, they're perfect manifestations of what dog shit people we are at like 13 and 14 and how like driven by our libido we are and so you know it 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 works in that whether or not it works as its own show remains to be seen but uh, good luck to him (laughs) Uh, i know that bringing back david thewlis's character uh who isn't in big mouth so much anymore so i i like that about it because he's very funny so the actual show that i wanted to talk about is called the house yes and this is from nexus who, you know, they they consistently smash it. Of course, they do a lot of advertising and commercial uh, commissions, that sort of thing. But this looks... uh, It's such a perfect gathering of talent. These are people that maybe aren't as well-known as, you know, the Nick Krolls and the Alex Hirsches in the overall animation community, but to the short film geeks like you and I, um, the names Emma Disswaif and Mark Rolls and Nikki Lindroth von Barr, and Paloma Baeza, they're like stop motion royalty at this point. Yeah. I still like really regularly have the burden swelling in my head <laughs> for however <laughs> four or five years ago, I think that came out. Yeah. But that film, like, it so perfectly captured this very hard to explain, like, essence of <laughs> the desolation of it. Yeah. You know, this landscape and these people in their fluorescent lit universes going about their lives is so perfect. Uh, so then she's bringing that, you know, to, um, to this series. And it's about a house, uh, the same structure in different time periods occupied by different, uh, ensembles, I guess, of characters. So the Mark and Emma episode is you know it's people living in the house people with that very uh, the style that we're familiar with from magnificent cake and O'Willy, all these needle felted people with faces too small for their heads uh they all kind of look like Haley joel osmond who i don't know if you've if you've seen him since the sixth sense but his head grew but his face didn't yeah and whenever i see him in something he really looks like O'Willy. <laughs> lovely chap i'm sure i'm not cast in shade i mean you know yeah i'm not going to be on the cover of next month's gq so <laughs> take it you know in stride Haley, because i'm sure you listen to our podcast but that looks really funny um nikki lindroth from bars film uh, episode i guess is about uh insects i guess mm. disguising themselves as other animals that looks really fun and palama baeza did an nfts film a few years ago that i i feel like isn't talked about as much as the work of the other two but it's great we've got coverage on all of their sort of main films over the year i think laura interviewed all of them at some point or other stop motion she would have been straight in there yeah (laughs) i remember that um helena bonham carter was also in palomar's nfts film and poles apart yeah and she's in this too and um uh, that's the thing is interesting whenever the annecy presentation sort of happen the press release that accompanies them is like cast announcement for I would have much preferred more like sort of you know, animation factoids to share with people, but uh. definitely. I mean, like the we're soon going back to the first Annecy I did for Squiggly. One of the best things I got was a a fact sheet about the pirates and adventure with scientists. 
how many lentils they used as rivets around the side of the boat. That was that's the sort of information we need, isn't it, Ben? It's what the public need to hear. Yes, exactly. <laughs> how many tons of plasticine? How many cups of tea did it take to make the film? That's what we want to know. I was. I'm, I'm not like spinning cartwheels that Gillian Anderson plays the cat. Like you know, <laughs> if it's as good as her turn as the witch that said yes three times in Room on the Broom. <laughs> you know, hey. <laughs> uh, I'm sure. I'm sure she does a bang up job. Uh, yeah. I, I like Gillian Anderson. What the hell? But yeah, that looks really fun. It's great to see. It's you know. It would have been nice to maybe have a six-episode show, but I'm not going to get greedy. Let's see how we do with three. Season um, two. Yeah, fingers crossed. It captures people's hearts. It, it's nice to see that stop motion is being kind of recognized as something that's sort of viable in the Netflix slate, because they've done a few stop motion things. Like They did a thing with um, the Alien Christmas special. Mm. There's an episode of Love, Death, and Robots, the new season, that, you know, is really nice stop motion with a slightly odd addition of CGIs. But mm. uh, I think actually Laura's got an interview with the chap who did that. Great. Uh, coming up soon. So keep your ears open for that. But it was funny and it was really short. It didn't really feel like Love, Death and Robots. Yeah. There's actually a really great write-up on uh, Squiggly, if I say so myself, because I didn't write it. A <laughs> uh, new contributor wrote a review of it and had a really great summation uh, let me patch it up. But this, I think, perfectly, I think, echoed our sentiments at the time. Uh, the anthology's first season was an explosive, heady combination of genres and visual styles, wearing its influences on its sleeves. The first season was aggressively adults-only, visibly repelling against the restraints that have historically collared American animation. This passion made the anthology both entertaining and frustratingly juvenile, especially with regards to its portrayal of women. That's part of a review of the second season, which is up on Squiggly now. But uh, I remember that being pretty much kind of how I felt about it. That and the the swearing, the um, mm. the swearing is it was sort of written by a twelve year old who'd just been given permission to swear. <laughs> <laughs> what any time I like, <laughs> shit bollocks, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> the uh, I think there was a good one in the, there was a good one though. It's I mean. It, undeniably you know there's talent on display with these love death and robots films um not necessarily in the areas that we would have liked but um helping hand i think was a great standout in the first season i think it was that was done by a scottish company um i think it was by axis um and that was that was particularly great um in terms of like you know suspense and and drama and and kind of really pushing what it seems that they've realised, what the or what they're now saying, obviously. Um, they must have said, they might have said it in the first season, but what they were saying about season two is that, you know, it's this kind of sandbox and they can do whatever they like with it. Um, and what was interesting about the about the presentation, uh, was it um, Tim Miller, the um, one of the showrunners, who was saying that when uh, they originally pitched the show to Netflix... Netflix didn't have any metrics on the group that the show reaches. So basically it was as if they've never made a show for that, that audience before. And so they were like, well, we got to make it because there's a massive gap here in the market. So it's, it's ticking boxes for someone. So that's good. And like I say, I mean, it does seem that the second 
by all accounts, the second season seems to evolve itself. It seems like it's going in the right direction. Certainly. Great. I mean, there are a lot of elements that seem to have a foothold in a whole genre of animation that I just, it's, it's, it's so not for me. And it's sort of the action adventure sci-fi stuff, very CG oriented. Mm. And I know Netflix, you know, is, is, um, embracing some of that. There was a thing, um, I think there's a Resident Evil show, which, uh, released some footage recently. I was watching that and being like, this is definitely for someone else, yeah. you know? A lot of effort's gone into it, clearly, but there must be... It just feels like video games without the interactive component. Yeah, cutscenes. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I actually worked on a show like that, which was, I think, going to be on Netflix, and I think it's actually now the company that owns the IP is doing their own streaming platform. So I think it's now not going to be on Netflix. But they released the first five minutes of one of the episodes and it's this kind of like sci-fi army in space not quite star wars but more like sort of po-faced mm. uh big explosions you know commander you, you can't do this wow uh, transported then <laughs> are you the theater of the mind gripping you <laughs> oh, yes sir uh, but they released the first five minutes including this little segment that i had worked on and because this ip is such a big fandom there was this like bevy of reaction videos to the first five minutes. And it was really quite gratifying to see all these dorks watch the sequence I worked on being like, oh, that's a good transition. <laughs> They're like, it fucking was a good transition. About time. Finally. <laughs> now I can put what? that on my gravestone. <laughs> Here lies Ben Mitchell. It was a damn good transition. From life to death. I also had some of my animations show up on Celebrity Gogglebox recently. Even more commentary. It was part of a show that wasn't Celebrity Gogglebox, but they were watching it, and like a little clip of my animation made its way into the clip they showed on Celebrity Gogglebox, and then just cut to like a shot of Denise Van Outen picking her nose. So nice. didn't quite get the same reaction, but I can now say I've, I've had animation. On, it's an extra credit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so the house looks fun. Another film that I guess you haven't seen yet, but it was recommended to us by, um, was it Jamie mentioned this yeah, last night? Jamie last night, yeah. Jamie Badminton. I wouldn't have found this film otherwise, but there's this documentary about Will Vinton called Clay Dream. And I think it's also been playing, it's supposed to be playing at Tribeca and a couple of other fests. I think it's just kind of launched. Mm. And it's the company who do. I think they do Rick and Morty, maybe. It's called Starburns. Starburns, isn't it? Yeah, they used to do it. So it's Dino uh, Stamatopoulos, is it? And uh, Duke Johnson. They did um, Anomalisa. Yeah. And I, I gather that maybe um, Will Vinton would have been probably a, an influence on him. Hmm. Now, I love Will Vinton's stuff. I hadn't seen as much of it as I thought I had. It really goes into some interesting detail about the different kind of work he took on as he was adapting to the changing climate of animation. And I think the the narrative that I kind of had in my head was that he rode the wave of stop motion's popularity in the 80s with stuff like uh, California Raisins, that being the main one, um, and Domino's Pizza commercials. There was a Michael Jackson music video that's sort of iconic. I scared the crap out of me as a kid. That dancing rabbit. Oh, my God. It was the the, the fans chasing Michael Jackson, and they're all, for some reason, claymation, but he's not. And then he's like, I'll turn into a rabbit and escape. 
then the song begins. Why the fuck not? As long as we're keeping them away from kids, it's fine. <laughs> Nothing was ever conclusively proven, apparently. Weirdly, that, that video isn't really referenced so much. There's like a still from it that you see. But then there's this whole other thing that he did. It was like a California Raisins meets Michael Jackson project, which I hadn't heard of. But there's this really creepy scene where he's like, I guess Will Vinton is filming his answering machine, playing back all of these like answering machine messages from Michael Jackson. It's like, Will, Will, we got to work on a project together. Call me back. And then, babe, where's Michael Jackson again? Are you there? It's so like, what does he want from me? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, if Michael Jackson's leaving you that many messages, you're going to film it for posterity, I suppose. Exactly. But hey, it's uh, uh, he had quite the, the storied life, Will Vinton, and he was not without his own idiosyncrasies. It really does lay him out. You know, it's not like, it's a celebration of his work, but it's not like portraying him in this way that he was, you know, he made mistakes. And he, I think, was the architect of his downfall, to borrow a phrase. It wasn't very fair, but it, it was all sort of legally above board, really, you know? Mm. It was, uh, the, I think the analogy in the uh, documentary is, you know, he was a guppy that made friends with a shark. Fair enough. It, so it goes into how Will Vinton Studios becomes like it. And there have been some really interesting like articles and interviews about how that came to be. And it doesn't give a whole ton of new information, but it does give some interesting sort of insight into you get both sides of the story and you, it does kind of make sense from a business perspective. But, uh, you know, there's business and then there's emotion and then there's sort of what one person considers to be intelligent business decisions versus just being nice to someone and human mm. decency. It, it is what it is. But he's, it, what's really, kind of, I won't spoil the ending, but it ends on a positive note. And I, a lot of that's attributed to, I think, Will Vinton's attitude after it all went down. But what's really interesting is how he began his sort of rise to fame in partnership with a guy who kind of peak bested himself and wasn't easy to work with. And ultimately they had to part ways. And then Will Vinton goes on to be really successful. And this guy couldn't let that go. And to his eventual like death, like was constantly like, you know, better about Will Vinton doing well. And perhaps that being in his past, after losing his studio, maybe that was how he was able to become so Zen because he felt a lot of remorse for this guy who had been his friend working himself up so much about them going separate ways and him not being able to ride the, the crest of fame. And yet, Will Vinton's fame, you know, it wasn't like they were universally beloved all the time. The Mark Twain film was completely panned, which I didn't know. Um, I, I didn't realize it was even that sort of known a thing. It always felt like a very obscure thing to me. Certainly with the Squiggly Film Club uh, votes. Yes. I mean, shame on all of you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but isn't it? They show like snippets of reviews and like one of them is like a kid watching this film wouldn't have any idea what's going on. And I'd be like, yep, <laughs> that was me. I didn't yeah. know, if, you know, I hadn't read any Mark Twain until I was like nine or 10. So watching like an anthology of Mark Twain claymation stories at five, I'm like, all right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually where I thought Adam and Eve came from 
was the Mark Twain short story of Adam and Eve, because I watched this movie as a kid. That was the first thing with Adam and Eve in it, so I thought the movie was where, when people talked about Adam and Eve, that was uh, where it was from until <laughs> until eventually in primary school someone told me about the Bible, and I'm just like, yeah, I liked the film better. <laughs> it's wittier. But also interesting, like, how much he embraced evolving animation and you know they really kind of embraced cg when it came along and they were able to keep themselves afloat doing tons of cg commercials and it is hard he still wanted to do claymation features and create claymation characters and build his own brand of of you know licensable characters and stuff like that and he, he never really sort of let go of that completely but yeah, they, they did very well. I, I found that, I don't know if they covered it in the documentary, I've not seen it yet, um, but did they cover the fact that, you know, obviously Will Vinton copyrighted and came up with the term claymation. It wasn't like, um, uh, it wasn't, you know, Gumby, it wasn't Aardman, it wasn't any anyone who came before who used, the, who copyrighted the word claymation. It was Will Vinton, Will Vinton Studios. And then obviously when, when Leica took it on, Leica still owned the term claymation mm-hmm. they, didn't, they didn't even let him have that <laughs> no that actually does come up i think there's a lot of uh, deposition footage mm. which is edited into it kind of oddly like it's sort of sprinkled throughout rather than kind of occupying a sort of space near the end where it would make sense to narratively there were some pacing issues I, I had with it but i find that a lot with animation documentaries it's a hard one to kind of tell the full story earlier in the year i did a review of the chaotic Ren and Stimpy documentary, which, all things considered, actually came together all right. You can tell, though, at a certain point in it, the intent for the documentary is just derailed. And then it suffers because of that. But it's like, well, they've already done so much. What else could they do? Mm. This, I think, doesn't suffer in nearly the same way, structurally and pacing-wise. But there are little issues here and there. And I think maybe one of the few criticisms would be that we're kind of teased, I think, with this kind of eventual downfall, for lack of a better term, of Will Vinton's studio. But in a way that that doesn't quite complement the footage that comes before and after it until the sort of larger sequence at the end. And, you know, there's you know, some fun stuff in that, in the sort of gossipy sense of, like, people being salty. There's a <laughs> Travis Knight will never escape the specter of chili tea, <laughs> which um, was this kind of like early Everlast meets Eminem, yes. like rap persona he attempted to get off the ground for himself in the early 90s. And there's a bunch of like unseen chili tea business. Oh. Because I, I, I'd seen some little clips on YouTube, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff in there. Which is... Well, let's hurry up with this podcast so I can watch it just for that. I just you know. <laughs> But there's a point in the deposition where Will Vinton refers to the chili tea debacle and the look on Travis Knight's face. Like, I think the expression is a bulldog licking piss off a nettle. <laughs> He's not happy. Oh, well, lots to look forward to. The back and forth with Travis Knight is, and this comes up in the documentary too, he never came in as like the shareholder son and put his feet on the desk and said, all right, build my studio for me mm. uh, so I can take the credit. He he got his hands dirty from day one and he worked on the shows and he, you know, by all accounts uh, would always be in the trenches when it came to the feature films he'd eventually do. 
like I say, it comes down to like business versus. It's a bit like that uh, the founder about the McDonald's guy, right? Yeah. So yeah, really, it's called Clay Dream. Is yeah. the film? You speak to anyone who works at Leica, and they they do attest to that. They do say that you know he's not like you say he's not doing it because he can do it. He's doing it because he wants to do it. And there's a huge difference, isn't there, between that kind of um, spoilt brat, my dad's basically Scrooge McDuck, he's got loads of money and I can do whatever I like, and somebody who this is a, a genuine interest. And you get the impression that Chili T was a genuine interest. You know, he wanted to throw himself into music. It wasn't very good music, it wasn't, you know, but that was a kind of creative outlet for him and that's what he wanted to do. And And... Uh, am I forgiving that that sort of embarrassment? But yeah, it's it, it, yeah, it's an easy thing I think to take a pop at. Yeah. But I don't think any white boy rap from 1993 holds up. Like it's <laughs> it's not worse than the people who had major record deals and sold tons of records. Yeah. So yeah, thanks to Jamie for uh, popping that on the uh, on the radar there. Mm. And it is qu- pretty hidden on the Annecy website. So if you have if you do have access to the video platform or the program, take a look for it because uh, you scroll down from the films in competition and it's there. So um, worth worth having another click around for because because uh, yeah sounds great. So those were the, I think the sort of main highlights I'd noted down as far as the the events outside of the film programs. Mm. Um, anything else grabbing you? Yeah, so um, Jorge Gutierrez was there. Obviously, a couple of Netflix projects that he's involved in. He's involved in We the People, which looks absolutely fantastic. Um, but he was there obviously with his wife Sandra to talk about. Uh, Maya and the Three. And, I mean, this was like day two, day three, and there'd been a fair few kind of work-in-progress screenings, which I have tried to watch a lot of the uh, feature film work-in-progress screenings, and they were in French. The translation wasn't working. Obviously, it's a French festival, but, you know, they're an international festival as well. And nothing on the website does it say it's in French uh, or French only. So I was a little bit annoyed about that. And so I was a little bit, like, down in the dumps about it all. And then... Jorge Gutierrez turns up with just tons of enthusiasm, loads of lavish artwork, all beautifully and, you know, enthusiastically explained um, by Jorge and Sandra. And the the uh, series, Meyer and the Three, which uh, they were talking about, just looks, it looks wonderful. If you love the Book of Life, then you're going to love this. Uh, you know, they're, they're a couple that, that have that have poured their heart and soul into this and want to create this kind of amalgamation of of Mexican um, and uh, Mesoamer- Mesoamerican cultures and uh, produce this epic. I think it's a, a nine part miniseries, um, half hour episodes each, and yeah, it just looks absolutely incredible. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so that's a, a, a big recommendation. Um, from me, and then his his section in in uh, in We the People looks great as well. I thought that was a great uh, put together um, event. Uh, Unicorn Wars as well. That was another work in progress. Have you seen this yet, Ben? No. Is this um, uh, Alberto, Alberto Vasquez? Vasquez? Yeah. Yeah. So this is the director of uh, Decorado. Decorado. Um, Bird Boy, and uh, last year he did Homeless Home. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's like a fantasy that's due in, I think it's May and June next year, so summer next year. 
the way it was described was he put his three favourite fictions together. Apocalypse Now, Bambi, and the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Rather cheekily. Which, um, and and it, it, is, it is Apocalypse Now meets Bambi or the Care Bears or something like that. And it's, um, it's a world where teddy bears are, uh, are battling for the enchanted forest against unicorns. Um, so on paper, it sounds cute and, and lovey-dovey, but in reality, it's this kind of harsh, kind of lost in the jungle um, uh, bloodbath. Uh, and it, 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 does, it does look and it does sound amazing. Um, one of the things I took away from it, though, which was um, which was interesting, is that they're having difficulty kind of finding um, finding distribution for it through channels, through traditional broadcasters. And I sat there watching it, thinking, "Oh my god, I hope it doesn't turn into another one of these adult animated feature films that doesn't find a distributor." We know plenty of them, um, but um, uh, Nicholas Schmirkin, the um, producer said that it's strange that in 2021 he's still going to broadcasters and traditional broadcasters are still saying animation is just for kids so no one would want to watch a film like this but the same channels are complaining that netflix is taking all of their best animators (laughs) and all of their audience and that got a huge round of applause from the audience because it's 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 a it's an incredible kind of. It's not even a paradox. Uh. It's like they they can't even see the channels can't see what Netflix are doing. There, I mean, how many times over the years before streaming became such a huge thing, Ben, were we kind of saying, "Oh, wouldn't it be great if you just gave that person a, a series on on TV? Just give that person their own show." And Netflix are doing it, mm. and the audiences are going to streaming in droves, not for convenience but for quality. And I think that that's something that's that that is is kind of is, is clearly happening. It's something that broadcasters really need to, uh, you know, wake up to. Yeah. Really. Uh, so that was great. That's Unicorn Wars. Give that a look. Um, and uh, yeah, and clap along when he says the thing about Netflix and uh, broadcasters <laughs> if you want. There's <laughs> also a great show for the um, NFB as well. They uh, they did a kind of uh, here's what's showing at Annecy this year. About um, about animation, which um, they got some great show- they got some great films in in competition this year. Um, the NFB. Uh, and I don't know if that's the the world's most perfect segue into talking about the short films, Ben. What do you reckon? <laughs> Why not? Uh, yeah, I mean the the like you say they are present. Uh, I think there are three, maybe or four, in the main competition. Uh, one of which actually we have a feature up on uh, this past week. Mauvais Lab. Bad Seeds by Claude Cloutier. Claude did a film called Carface a while ago. We did coverage on that. And uh, I got to see him working on this other film a few years ago when Laura was doing um, stuff with the SAS in Montreal. And so we popped by the NFB and he's just making this film entirely on paper in ink. And I'm just like, yes, please. <laughs> and it's wonderful, beautiful, beautiful drawings. It's uh, strange carnivorous plants that can shapeshift and they take the form of dictators or weapons or bestial animals eating at each other. And it's almost a kind of like Looney Tunes battle and yet a bit sort of like push comes to shove as well. That's exactly what, I mean, on my notes I wrote, it was like push comes to shove with taste, with a flavor of um, Terry Gilliam as well, which obviously Bill Plimpton takes a lot out of as well. Mm. The director of push comes to shove. Yeah. 
I I really really enjoyed that film. I I, I love the kind of the the wackiness of it and that kind of um, yeah that, that that's that's Looney Tunes as well, isn't it? That kind of it's it's um, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and or, or Elmer Fudd and shooting in the face and things like that. And there was actual shooting in the face as well. So yeah, it was a bit duck rabbit duck as well in places. Well, the the music is interesting because it's also to me it had a very kind of Carl Starling vibe. Mm. And I'm not sure if that was sort of hugely the intention. I talked a bit about the music in the interview, but I think he, the genre of music is more kind of to give it a sense of geography. Mm. But the actual structure of the compositions to really kind of complement the visual goings on, like chopped up into little pieces and sort of really, you know, used as punctuation for the action, um, that really gave it that Looney Tunes vibe for me. Not really cartoony, it's sort of more like cartoonist e. It's like a kind of like newspaper cartoon come to life. Yeah, yeah. Who's the guy who did the Alice in Wonderland? Name begins with T. Um, or surname begins with T. That bloke. Yeah. <laughs> the book illustrations. Yeah, newsprinty kind of um, yeah. Uh, John Tenniel? That's the guy, yeah. Thank you Microsoft Bing. Wow. I can't believe you're using Bing. <laughs> Neither can I. I can't fucking change it. Yeah, that, that was a great one. And so there's a there's an interview up on the site, the little behind the scenes uh, making of exploring the short upon Squiggly. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Great stuff. Something else that went up last week, going into the commission films category. There were some really good commission films. A lot of stuff for other festivals. That's sort of the the main recurring theme is like other festival items. And then there's some stuff like Kintis Lundgren's Sparks music video was great. Martina Scapelli did a music video, which I think we talked about on Intimate Animation last time. Uh, Will and Ainsley's Christmas Adult Swim film, fucking wonderful. Yes. The big <laughs> scrotal Santa just pissed <laughs> off. <laughs> but there's a film by Anna Ginsberg called Love-Hate Relationship, and that's for breast cancer now. Uh, that's in true sort of Anna Ginsberg form wonderful sequence of like morphing images that really draw upon a kind of established skill for character work and design and stuff. So she was on the last animation one-to-ones or possibly the second to last, depending on whether this podcast goes up before the Elliot Deer one. We'll see. Either way, it's easy to find. Really interesting chat with her. She's really super candid about the realities of this kind of work, especially when it comes to budgets. And no one talks about that. So I think that's online anyway. I'm pretty sure it is, but um, mm. it, it's certainly one of my favorites in the commission category. So I thought it would be a nice excuse to catch up with her. Great. Other short films. Another one that kind of reminded me of a newspaper cartoon. There's a film called Box Ballet. Did you see yeah. that one? That was fun. What it really reminded me of was, um, did you ever see the animated Far Side? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Years ago. It, it really had that sort of vibe to it, especially the, the coloring, but also a lot of the character designs really felt sort of Gary Larson-y. Mm. But the short films, which were directed by Marv Newland, I'm pretty sure one of them actually won an Annecy Crystal at the time. Very similar kind of vibe, and it's because it's such a style from a whole other era. And I'm not sure if Gary Larson was a direct influence on this film, but that certainly helped me enjoy it. Yeah. And it's a nice little tale. You know, it's um, uh, easy to follow. It's not, you know, up its own ass. It wasn't super hilarious or anything, but it was it was just well done. It was peppered with laughs, even when it comes like, to the motion of the characters. There's a bit where he's delivering sugar 
to a house, which that had me like laughing my head off. Just just the way that he was kind of frantically kind of trying to romance this woman by dropping off a huge bag of sugar outside the door for that kind of like you know scattering up and down the stairs and things like that. Well, <laughs> that was quite fun. Um, but yeah, I like the the texture and the shade and things like that in that uh, in in box ballet. Uh, I was particularly it was particularly enjoyable, and just the scenes where the punching punching as well, very kind of oh the the punch animation is is wonderful. Yeah, there was one that really got Laura. I think it was uh, yeah she it's the ballet dancer. She's being sort of skeeved on by the instructor. And she does this beautiful, really, really slow fist formation of her hand. <laughs> One finger followed by the next finger. And then, poosh, that was beautifully done. Was beautiful yeah. anticipation. And that, I think, was the first one up. It was. In the competition screen. So it was a strong start. Yeah. And then, you know, inevitably, some some stinkers came along. But I, put, I jotted down some titles of films that I, I, I dug. Bad Seeds, obviously. What Resonates in Silence was nice. Quite mm. thoughtful. A couple of stop-motion ones. The Shaman's Apprentice and one called Tio. The Shaman's Apprentice. Can you attempt to read out the original film title of it? Let me try and find the listing. Anger Kuksa Zhajuk. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably completely wrong, but we'll, yeah. we'll give it a go. That was a particularly good film. I like that. I, there was, I, I had certain issues with the kind of... Um, I love the characters. I love the character designs. I love the way that they were... Um, the lighting in the film was beautiful. The way it was shot was beautiful. But story-wise, it seemed like there was a lot of build-up and not a lot of payoff for me. There was moments sure. where... So, obviously, the... the um, the story is about a an elderly uh, shaman and, and her granddaughter, who she's training up to be a, a shaman as well. And they take a trip to the underworld after covering a man in piss uh, to uh, um, to to kind of rescue his soul or to find out uh, to release the demons from him. Uh, it's set in um, uh, in the, in the frozen north, and so you get that kind of. Um, you know the beautiful lighting and camera work and things but when they go through to the underworld there are like three kind of major things that happen and you kind of don't pick up on there's no kind of payoff there's a a major moment where there's the giant dog Mm. and this isn't kind of going to spoil anything and it's kind of built up that you know if this if you do something near this dog something will happen and it doesn't happen there and then and you think that's coming back later on that's the Mm. Chekhov's enormous dog, you know. And it was weird how like sort of non-threatening the dog was. Yeah, it felt like maybe it should. It was it was sort of giant, but it, other than that, it was just kind of like a cute dog. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think maybe more of a kind of threat element of it could have been conveyed, perhaps. But uh, yeah, but yeah, I think a lot of the times when I, I see stop motion, I, I'm a just sort of grateful I'm seeing it and that it's actually being done competently. Yes. Because you see a lot of stop motion come through where it's super janky or juddery, or they'll put too much attention in one thing and, and not another. And I think both these films, Shaman's Apprentice and Tio, I would also say that Tio probably suffered a bit at the end in a similar way, but they both just feel like really nice sort of all-rounders. And after some clunkers, all-rounders are a real relief, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, what did you think of uh, Tio? Kind of reminded me of the, in terms of like the character designs, on the faces, a little bit monster of Nick's. I can see that, yeah. 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 
Just wanted to say that. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I think it was a good observation. Well done. And I, and I didn't pick up on the, throughout, I didn't pick up on the message behind the film and then right at the end. So it's, it's about a, you know, a young guy, who, a young, a young boy who uh, goes to work in a mine and has to make a, uh, a sacrifice of beer and cigarettes to a, uh, a deity. Um, uh, he doesn't quite believe in the deity and there's a confrontation and things like that. Um, but at the end, it was like, yeah, this film's dedicated to, I think it was dedicated to um, children that are um, snapped up by gangs, in street gangs in, in Mexico uh, that have died as a result. And I, mm. I didn't, I mean, it was very far removed from that message. And so it was kind of written down exp explicitly at the end. Without that as as a sort of guide at the end, you wouldn't pick that up at all as a metaphor yeah. for that, you know? Yeah. Mm. Interesting. But yeah, that was that was interesting. Um, in terms of stop motion then, what did you make of People in Motion, the film about the guys um, who have... Um, I think they're all guys, and I, I, I seem to recall. Uh, 23 hours in the dark, uh, they're waiting for a, a rocket flare to give them 40 seconds of light a day, and they all... They all live in a pond and in big, tall houses. I honestly didn't care for it super much. Yeah. We were both surprised when we realized it was the people who did Balance. Yeah. Because I would have thought it was a student film. I wouldn't have thought it was a film by people who were so established in that sense or had such a, a hit under their belt, if you yeah. know what I mean. I don't want to sound mean. Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to find the. Uh, you mentioned jonky ones. I was just looking for which ones, which ones there were, and, and it wasn't as polished, was it, as say, as as Tio or as um, the uh, Shaman's Apprentice. Um, but yeah, I, I like I like the premise. I thought that was a nice kind of story, and and it, and it was nicely rounded and things like that. But um, maybe technically, um, I mean, any, any animated stop motion short film be made in the age of COVID. Is a huge deserves a huge round of applause or any animated film, but mm. um, yeah, it kind of made you wonder, didn't it? Really, um, a good tale of greed, really. I like that the you know the kind of fairy tale, no happy ending kind of uh, approach. I, I kind of I enjoyed that. And while we're on mm. stop motion, what did you think of um, uh, Bestia or Bestia? Uh, it was about a um, you know a woman who. Uh, settles down at the breakfast table with her dog. And they eat breakfast together. Uh, it's not Wallace and Gromit, though. Um, <laughs> it's it's very much not Wallace and Gromit. Anyone who's you know watched the um, the sex scene in uh, in Anomalisa and said, you know what, stop motion could do with a few more of these. You might well have wished for too much. What I did like about that one was the choice of approach for the head design. Or the the material, it kind of looked like an unreal rendered CG head. Yeah. Or like something in um oh that Rune Spans film, The Absence of Eddie Table, like those sort of super shiny artificial heads and these parasitic creatures and stuff like that. Um and I quite liked that in a stop motion environment, you know. Um and the stillness of it and everything. Yeah. It put me a little in mind of Good Intentions by Adam and Cyrus. Mm. For a couple of reasons, either kind of the character, um, sort of floating through that you know this sort of strange world, 
but also the production design, like the sets and stuff, had a kind of similar lo-fi quality to them. Mm. Like they all sort of felt a bit um, like cardboard cutout, you know, in a similar way. So I got the similar sense of atmosphere from that, and I wonder if maybe Good Intentions might have been an influence of it. Yeah, perhaps. Maybe. A couple of other ones, just sort of uh, one that I think has also come up before on the podcast, but uh, in Nature, Dans la Nature, there's just a fun sort of cartoony one about uh, the fluid sexuality and uh, gender identity of the animal kingdom. That was a nice one. And uh, The World Within, I also jotted down and then in brackets next to it, pretty. <laughs> um, but ultimately, I think the head of the leaderboard for me, uh, unless you had a couple others you wanted to go through. Uh, I could rattle through some, um, but uh, let's uh, let's leave people to make their own kind of uh, judgment. I mean, if you are looking, uh, take a look at Easter eggs, take a look at a film called uh, Horatio, and take a look at a film called, uh, what's it called? This Feeling in My Stomach? Though All those sensations in my belly. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, there's some really nice ones. And obviously, Peter Millard, just to... <laughs> just, just, just for the sake of it being a, a absolutely nut, nutcase uh, Peter Millard film, shapes, colours, people, and floating down. Um, cool. But yeah, we we have a favourite, don't we, Ben? We have a, a, a front runner, don't we? Yeah, I would be surprised if this wasn't most people's favourite. To be honest, I guess by the time this goes up, we'll know if this has won anything. Mm. I feel like it should. It's certainly won stuff already. It's um, deservedly so. It is, of course. The new film from Joanna Quinn and Les Mills, Affairs of the Art, which we've been waiting for at Squiggly since before we started <laughs> doing stuff for Squiggly, I think. Like you mentioned before, like this sort of year kind of marks us doing it for a decade. Yeah. Joanna has been a, a Squiggly advocate and benefactor and supporter since before our tenure, since, you know, back in the days when what's his name ran it. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, it was it was one of the early sort of conversations I remember sort of having about, uh, was Joanna going to come to Annecy? And she would always say, oh, I'll come to Annecy when I finish my new film. And finally, the film is finished and we can't fucking go to Annecy. <laughs> uh, well, they should, uh, you know, hopefully, I mean, she's obviously part of the events and stuff, but hopefully we'll... Um, We'll all be able to go next year. I think they should have a next year anyway on the strength of this film because it's quite something. If you've seen any of her other films, you know that she's just, you know, she's the best when it comes to this kind of stuff. Mm. It's full, beautifully realized, amazing sense of anatomy and proportion. I think that you see stuff like what Richard Williams is doing toward the end of his career with prologue and people saying like, oh, well, this is, you know, I mean, it's, it's very impressive. What he, what he was able to do was space and form and anatomy and stuff. But Joanna was showing like her early animation tests at this presentation today, the body image presentation she did with Signe and Martina. She showed like the first animation she ever did. It, it was so fucking good. Mm. And it was just, it was just, you know, this five second character study of a male figure kind of posing and, she had such an astute grasp of anatomy right out of the gate. And Signe makes a comment in the presentation where she's like, you you put everyone to shame. And Joanna's like, oh, no, um, no, 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 no. And Signe's like, it's not a compliment. I'm just stating it as a fact. <laughs> <laughs> but she's one of these people that is always drawing. That's the type of thing that doesn't, you know, and she enjoys that. 
and that joy comes is is front and center in her films it it really is and it although we know speaking to her that this seemingly easy kind of task for her is no way easy she's you know everything that you see on screen has taken so much kind of effort to end up on screen because she won't put it up on screen unless it's in her mind perfect um that all comes from just constantly drawing and constantly practicing and constantly being there um whenever she's uh, attended events at math or whenever i've seen her attend events at you know cardiff or or or, or anywhere else i always see her with a sketchbook and she's always sketching she's always mm-hmm. kind of drawing the people in front of her um, so if, if you've been in an audience and Joanna Quinn's been in the audience as well, you are somewhere in one of her piles and piles of sketchbooks somewhere. In, you know, if you're yeah. interesting or ugly enough, she's <laughs> she's probably scribbled <laughs> you somewhere uh, in, in in there. But I think ev- even though she, even though her last film, uh, Dreams and Desires, uh, Family Ties, was an absolute triumph, this new film makes Dreams and Desires family family ties look it's it's a huge leap forward in in terms of like um uh just for the you could just go on the look of it well the lighting the the shade the the texture of affairs of the art is is a step above anything she's done before you can go on the story well the pacing of uh of affairs of the art it is straight out of the gate like a greyhound and it's just you're straight into into that bouncy bubbly uh personality of beryl that just slaps mm. you in the face straight away and then the film's not about beryl it's about the mm. weirdos that surround this weirdo that we've grown to love over the last 30 years and they're even weirder, and they're e- and you want to find out more and more and more. And she's delivering more and more and more, or rather, Les is delivering more and more and more through the writing as it goes ahead. And these are clearly characters that she loves. These are clearly characters that they have both, you know, crafted based on people that they know. As Les goes on to talk about in the in the interview, um, family members and, and and so on and so forth. Um, it is it is a cut above, um, and. Yeah, you'd be you'd have to be bonkers not to love it. And what's particularly nice about it is that it's, as well as being a film about people, it is also a film about art mm. and passion and the sort of interplay of that and the wonderful sort of business that draws upon, I'm sure, her own experience. And it's, it's just wonderful. I love as well the fact that in a film where you've got in such a short runtime, I don't know how, I mean, say such a short runtime, what is it, 15 minutes, something like that? 16 minutes. But in that 16 minutes, you get, um, you know, Hotels for Pigeons, Vladimir Lenin, <laughs> beetroots, corpses, <laughs> cryogenic freezing, <laughs> plastic surgery, um, uh, uh, art school. You get, you know, elderly Welshmen falling down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> screw threads and hammond organs and things like that it's all in this film um cat murder you know it's (laughs) i I can't keep keep coming up with stuff that's in this film um well that's the thing you get to the end of a a 16 minute film in the business that we're in and 99 percent of the time it's like okay next yeah or quite often thank christ that's over (laughs) When we finished this film, me and Laura, we, we, were, we were, like, sad. 
we're like, oh shit, it's over. Yeah. And I never feel that way about shorts that are more than 10 minutes long. Yeah, yeah. And because it's, it's, it really, like you say, for all of those reasons, it just ropes you in. And something that I gather has, has been quite important when it comes to this film being out there. Because Joanna Quinn is, you know, a beloved figurehead of animation. You know, anyone who, who really knows their animation chips knows who she is and what she's about. I've gotten the impression through a lot of the festival appearances and stuff that it's been very important for them as a team to really acknowledge the work that Les has brought to these films. Yeah. Because when often you talk about these films, you talk about them as Joanna's babies. Of course, the labor is, is you know, undeniably deserves that discussion. But as you say, it, d- it certainly needs the story to sell itself as a film. Yeah, definitely. And that's, and that, and, and you can see through that, through the story that, that, uh, I think I, I think I can't remember this interview was done quite a while ago, but I think I ask I ask Les about you know how do you channel that kind of middle aged Welsh woman you know kind of thing? Uh, how do you manage to um, to do that? Um, but yeah, absolutely the the kind of partnership between um, Joanna and Les um, uh, is uh, yeah a force to be reckoned with. Super well. I'm keen to hear the interview. Shall we, uh, shall we go ahead and cue it up? Let's cue it up. So this is Joanna Quinn and Les Mills, the team behind Affairs of the Art. So Joanna Quinn, Les Mills, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Exciting times. We have a brand new Beryl film, Affairs of the Art. How are you? We're okay. Good. <laughs> yes, we're, we're fine. We're yeah, fine. We're... Yeah, recovering really after making this film, which was a bit of a slog. So... Enjoying the peace and quiet, really. There's been a there's been quite a gap, uh, and and uh, since the last Beryl film, not I'm not having a go at you. You understand? Uh, <laughs> it's only fourteen years. A mere fourteen years, but a lot of uh, a lot of passion, a lot of energy, uh, a lot of love has gone into this into this project. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, and just to say, we haven't been spending 14 years making this film. It hasn't gone on that long. During that time, other stuff was happening. So um, it's really just been the last five years, four, four or yeah, five years. Yeah, I remember that uh, until around the end of 13, 2013, we were making ads, a lot of ads. Um, so, And we had a big crew, so um, we couldn't devote everything to the film. Um, so we only really started seriously getting stuck into it in 2014, really, right? Mm, or later than that. Was that? Oh, right, yeah. okay. Well, I mean, I, I did spend a long time doing the storyboard, a long, long time. And well, so, but it wasn't... <laughs> a year on each panel. <laughs> um, but really, we didn't really get cracking until we brought other people on board, which was about three or four years ago. Four years ago. That was when Mia was yeah, when Mia We had a proper crew, in a limit, very limited crew, about for the last four years, really. And that's when all of the kind of uh, major work went into it. Um, before that, it was just Joanna and maybe one other now and then. Yeah, just, I mean, seriously, probably the last five years we've been asking, yes, going for it. Let's, know, say five, let's say five. Let's say five. The first Beryl film made many years ago was uh, was a student film. Uh, I wondered if we could start by heading back to that time and how your working partnership came to be uh, on Girls' Night Out. 
Well, <laughs> she got, she's got a version. I got a version. Oh, I was at college. I, it was my um, graduation film, and uh, so I, 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 and it was a graphic design course. So um, I sort of fell into animation because we were given animation as a, um, a little uh, a project. So, and then I got hooked and thought, oh my goodness, this is fantastic. You've got to do all these drawings. Suits me fine. So I ended up focusing on animation. Um, and Les wasn't teaching at the time then, but but I, I was I, teaching, but not there. But not there. So I, I was sort of I wasn't the best student in the world. I wasn't at college a lot, you know, during when I was making the film, I tended to work at home. So Les and I worked together um on the idea and uh the actual uh film. The idea of this character was already there in a sense because Joe had been kind of, she, she'd done this, um, I'm not sorry about it, it was a, like a cartoon Oh, I strip. did a comic strip. Comic yeah, strip, it was a comic, that's why it started. You probably saw it. I think we might have shown it to yeah. you, actually. Uh, I think I saw it at the National Media Museum. It was at... Oh, maybe, right. yes. Yeah, well, well, that's where it is. That was the genesis of it. <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was a simple idea and it just needed, you know, fleshing out, it needed the character to be established. Um, and that's what we did, you know, and Joe, Joe did it. When, when it was first put out, it was a graduation film. Um, and I remember one part of it was that Joe, in graphic design, when you do a graphic design, uh, you, have a, you have an end of uh, a graduation show where you put, you've got space and you put all the, the artwork and, you know, kind of, uh, and it's easy when you're doing a lot of different things in graphic design. When you're making an animated film, though, basically you're, you're down to what we show you, you know, in, when people want to see how it comes about. You can only put the drawings up, the sketches, the, the vague storyboard. And I remember <coughs> Joe was looking at all the other students and they had all these fantastic kind of rich sort of... Illustrations. Yeah, and, and fashion design. And typography. It was very cool. It's a very cool place. <laughs> and she was like... I had a telly. Yeah. I had a telly, and I was like, yeah, "Oh my I said, god!" So what am I going to so put up? What am I going to put up? I said, "I said, Joe, you've got like thousands of beautiful drawings and cells." And I say, basically, you should you should have your show, and it should just the center of the show should be a massive sequence, the best sequence in the film, overlapped on the wall with cell, right? So, and she was like, "Oh," and so we did it, and it looked fantastic. And then we just supported it with all this other stuff, and in the end. Her show looked great because yeah, it was just really that film. It was, it was beautiful. <laughs> you didn't take any photographs of it, did you? No, it was the old. Uh, I don't think cameras have been invented. Oh right, yeah, so, so long ago. So that that was that was <laughs> great. And then the voices on it were like me, Phil Davis, Joanna, the woman in the refractory. They were anybody who happened to be available. You know, so. Um, were those the ones that you sent to Amnesty, or was it uh, the ones with the No, we did the professionals. Later. Yes. So she then, on her own, somehow she managed to realise there were such things as festivals, and she sent it <laughs> off to the biggest festival in the world, Amnesty, right? And then she told me afterwards, um, she sort of phoned me up um, and said, I won three prizes, Amnesty, <laughs> I won three prizes, Amnesty, you know, and then, Everybody honestly loved it, and every the television companies loved it, and um, S4C paid for a new voice 
in Welsh and English dub. They paid for it, put that on it, and it was uh, improved it. Didn't yeah. It? yeah. So it was a bit like making it in a vacuum because I was on a graphic design course and didn't really have other animators around. Oh, hang on, hang on. Except, except Neville and Jeff. You had Jeff Astley and Neville... Neville Astley Neville and Astley, Jeff sorry. knew it. Yeah, and you had people come in and you had... Not, yeah, not you that know. many, not Anyway. But anyway. So that's how, that's <laughs> how that film started. It started not only Beryl, it started Joanna's career. It started everybody uh, knowing about uh, Joanna and knowing about Beryl. So as a consequence, S4C, because they were putting money into animation, but like you couldn't believe, you know, you wouldn't believe that people were emigrating to Wales <laughs> to live there just to get money out of S4C, you know, which was, was actually brilliant. And they said straight away, Chris Grace, you know, you know Chris Grace, the, the commissioning editor, he said to us, oh, um, can you write another one? Can you write another one straight away, you know, another barrel film? So I, I said, okay, and so we sat down and we talked about ideas and we came up with um, another barrel film, which was Body Beautiful, right? For a barrel working in a Japanese factory in Wales, because there were huge numbers of Japanese factories in Wales. More than any other part of the world, actually. You could choose, you know, what? What are you stopping me for? We've over-answered his question. Oh, we are. Keep <laughs> <laughs> going. Keep going. Anyway, we, we, did, we, we went to four Japanese factories. I went uh, filming and recording. Joanna went and drew there. So we got to know how Japanese factories worked. You know, it was mainly young women, women, you know, late teenager, early tw 20s. And I said to this guy, thinking it was in the uh, Iowa factory, I think, up in Crumlin, um, in the valleys. I said, why, you know, it's full of young women and the only blokes are the controllers, you know, like you, you know, the factory nice. And he said, it's because their eyesight is great in their teenage years. And so they're all doing circuit boards and Christ knows what. So they were all like, brilliant at it. So that's the reason. That so, sounds like a lame excuse. No, no. But, but you know, <laughs> because of that, we, we, uh, we set Body Beautiful in, uh, it was a Panasonic factory, wasn't it, I think, or a Sony Panasonic. Um, with, that's what they look like. The people in it look like those, uh, the people in, a, in, in our film look like the people who were working in the factory. And that was great, you know, and um, that did okay, didn't it, actually, that film? Yeah, I, when you look at uh, we went off it after a few years, and, oh, God, you know. And, uh, but recently we've been looking at it, sometimes, especially when Joanna does a re retrospective, we're looking at it and going, oh, it's, it's actually a statement about a particular time and about w young women. It's all come to pass now. Everybody's, you know, the feminist movement's moved on and, now people don't accept that kind of those kind of conditions, and they want people in control as women and all the rest of it. So it was a bit of a kind mm. of um, uh, an eye opener for people to see uh, that and get ideas about why should I be just doing circuit boards? Why can't I be a manager? Why can't I be a, you know whatever? So there it we was go. A, it was also um, the first film that had a budget, and so yeah. for me. It was very difficult to, because um, the idea of being professional 
Um, I, I'd never really thought about it. Um, and so I'd made, I'd made Girls' Night Out almost just in, intuitively, just sort of playing around and, and it, everything happened to work. And it, it, it worked perfectly in the end. And the length, like I remember when we were editing, we had some music, the stripper music, and I didn't even time it, you know, I just, and it finished just at the right time. And I was thinking, gosh, <laughs> next time I make an animated film, I'm going to make sure everything is timed, you know, because it was all fluke. Everything was fluke. It was fluid. <laughs> yeah, that was fluid, right? Fluid and fluky. And luckily, because we had professionals in Perfect, uh, we, we, we were quite professional in sort of uh, holding auditions. I remember holding auditions in, in her house in Cardiff. And we, we didn't really know how to do it. So we sort of like put the word out and put ads up and everything. We had this sort of string of, on a Sunday morning, of blokes coming in, saying who they were. And then uh, and we'd interrogate them, say, you know, and they were, they were mainly Welsh, Welsh guys, right? So, because we had to choose as far as possible uh, actors and actresses who could do the two languages. They could, they could do it in English and then they could do it because S4C is obviously their money. And it was much easier for them to do that with, with bilingual actors. Anyway, we, 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 I think we, we got through about 12 blokes and none of them were like, you know, oh God, you know, they're really, and suddenly this bloke came in and, um, and he was very jaunty and very, you know, alive and funny. And then, and, and, uh, he was like, he was incredible. He was switching accents and he was, improvising around a kind of a uh, couple of lines we gave him. And he was brilliant, you know. We said, right, you got it, you know. And it, that was Rob Brydon, <laughs> right, as you know now. And uh, we thought, because he, he can do anything, you know. He can switch accents. He can imitate Welsh. He can't speak Welsh, but he does, does a sort of vernacular Welsh, which <laughs> sounds like Welsh. So that was brilliant to have him and uh, to have, we found Mena, Carl Francis, you know a filmmaker called Carl Francis? A live action filmmaker. Did a lot, you know, did a lot of uh, movies. He recommended Mena Trussler, the one who's been Beryl ever since. And we, we uh, auditioned her. She was great. Um, yeah, just to say the, the first um, Beryl was Mavan Talog, who sadly died. So um, that's why we had to look does for Does he know what? Yes, he does. Oh, right. So we had to look for a new. That, she was the wife of um, the guy who was really famous who was in all those kind of... David Jason. Yes. But she, unfortunately, she, she died, didn't yeah. she? So that, so that film, that, that was... Um, after that, what happened? Oh, I, we, we got kind of known in, in circles in, in Channel 4 and in S4C, and we got to know people like uh, the commissioning editor for Channel 4, who was... Claire Kitson. Yeah, Claire Kitson. And she was sort of enamoured of, of uh, Beryl and, and, the, and the animation. And she said, oh, it would be great. I got this slot at quarter to eight, just before the, the evening, eight o'clock Channel 4 news. And I, what, what I, want, I want you to do is to write five little animated ideas. And I, I'll broadcast them just before the news. And we said, this is fantastic because... Animate, animation, you always saw it at two o'clock in the morning. You know, even there was, even those programs like The Ghost in the Machine and 
what was it? Formations. Formations. Yeah. <laughs> they were all on like last thing at night when nobody, everybody gone to bed. So we thought, <laughs> oh, great. So I knuckled down and I wrote five barrel things. And um, we were quite excited about it. And then she resigned. <laughs> and the next person who came along said, well, we, we're not doing this anymore. And we said, oh, God. But Chris Grace, we'd signed something with him to do one film. So he had to basically honour the commitment. And then we, I wrote, um, I took some things from each of them and I wrote the last film, not like this film, the last one, which was Family Ties, right? Dreams and Desires, which, uh, we, and we had to put 50% of the money into it, which is okay because at that time we were doing ads. So we, we funded it half and half. And uh, we made that quite quickly, didn't we? I think mm. it was two, uh, two years, I think, that took. And that was 12 minutes. And um, 10. Was it? I thought it was 12. No. Anyway, that, like, you know, it was, it was incredibly successful, you know. I think you, but anyway, that, that was... Um, Let's take a breath. I am. I'm breathing. That did pretty well. <laughs> this is one of the joys of, of, uh, of, of interviewing a married couple. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, we, we had a, a couple of years after that where we um, enjoyed going to festivals and having, you know, being on juries and all that, you know, because a, a life of a short film is about three years, really, isn't it? You know, Two. Then, oh, all right. Well, it, for us, it was three. Somehow it managed to be three. And then we were stuck into, um, remember, at the same time, we were making films like uh, Wife of Bath, Britannia, um, Famous Friday. Yeah. I mean, we weren't just doing those things. So it was a full agenda. A lot of people working for us. Uh, and then the ads kicked in. So we were doing ads as well as uh, films for television. And we had a big, we had a big, I think we had 42 people working for us at one time. Can you believe? That's not that big. What? Oh, I mean, yes. if they were all squashed in this room, yeah. But, but you only had five on this one. <laughs> it's not like two hundred. You know, so um, they were they were good times, you know, because we had no we had an income and we were employing people and they were great people, you know. Yeah, we've always been very very lucky that we work with super talented people. So. Yeah. And, and lovely people as well. A lot, a lot of them we, we knew because we'd either taught them or we knew of them in, in the teaching. Yes, one way. of the benefits of teaching, you can steal the best students. Yeah. <laughs> so you get, you get them in and they, they want to, you know, have experience of the studio. So they come in for a week or so and they go, oh, great, you know, and then they start to get enthusiastic. And then they, their animation develops and then uh, you can basically employ them, which is great, you know. Obviously, you were invited by S4C and by Channel 4 to return to, to create more Beryl films. Uh, I wonder, obviously, now Beryl has returned once again, what for you both is the appeal of Beryl from a drawing point of view, from a writing point of view, from a directing and a producing point of view? Um, what's the appeal for you of working on Beryl? Yeah, um, I think... We enjoy Beryl as a character because she's very accessible and the audiences um, 
really seem to like her. And she's a little bit of an anti-heroine. She has a go and then fails and then succeeds. And, and so I think she's got, uh, she's got lots of um, foibles and um, weaknesses. weaknesses. And so you can have, you can have fun with her. And, and I was talking to somebody the other day and I was saying, what's really nice is that because she's not really vocal <clears throat> look at me and blah 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 blah. it's not it's not all show so when you're animating her um, and you're making her act a lot of it is what she's actually thinking so you're able to do a lot with facial expressions and so you're trying to get her character across with with her facial expression and her body language so it's not all about the dialogue um it's 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 steeper than that you know you're really trying to get her character across um with the last film we felt that we actually wanted to explore beyond Beryl like we felt like we've sort of done Beryl and we wanted to introduce her family and so that's why um th there's actually more of her family in in uh, affairs of the art than there probably is of Beryl Beryl is the narrator throughout it, but we, we get introduced to her sister and her husband more um, than in previous films awesome. and her son, Colin. Um, and so she sort of talks about her family. So she's the narrator and is very present throughout. But actually, visually, we see much more of the other characters than we do of Beryl. And so yeah. that was really nice. That was, that, that was new for us to be able to do that. Because we did think, oh god, another barrel film. I know, do. I do. You know, we just do. We're just doing the same thing over and over again. So we did want to, to expand it a bit. So that's why. Yeah, we did I mean, that. it was useful, you know, to write just not just because because remember, I'm a bloke and, and Beryl's a woman, and I write. I have to bear that in mind all the time, obviously, and I've got used to doing that. But it's it's it's. Uh, it's nice to be able to branch out and concentrate on other characters with strong personalities as well. Because some of those things that, that I wrote for Claire Kitson never got made. I took some of them and they, they were in this last film, the one we've just made. So especially Beverly. There was one film that we were going to make, which, which was called Beverly Thrills, right? Beverly Thrills? Yeah. Um, where... Beverly did go off to Hollywood and make it and all that. And then Beryl went on a journey to visit her. And it was, wasn't a very good script anyway. That, but we, we, I, I ripped, ripped off Beverly and stuck her in this film and developed her as a character. And she, she does those things, but with a kind of quite a strong narrative. How, do, how does she manage to end up in, in, in LA, you know, mixing with celebrities and all the rest of it, you know, when she was just, Basically, a nobody, a schoolgirl in Wales, but with an, an incredible obsession, you know. So it ended up, this film ended up as a kind of a, a film about family and a film about obsessions, family obsessions. Because I guarantee if I asked you right now, you know, is there somebody in your family who's really weird or, you know, messed up or something? I'll tell you to take your pick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's sort of, so in some ways, I mean, I've never, I've never met Beverly, but I certainly have met Colin because Colin is very much based on my brother. And he's like that. I mean, you know, he hasn't seen it yet. 
<laughs> but uh, but finding his reaction, Les, I think. Well, I sort of dropped hints over the last few years, saying like, you know, that time you, I remember this time where he was he was sitting on a table, and, and you know, when, when I was younger than a teenager, and he was very he was very precise about everything as he is in the film, and he was very. He would shout at my mother if his dinner wasn't ready, like as if he was married to her, you know. <laughs> and then he would be critical, like one day he, he looked at that thing and he'd pick out something and he, one day he held, he picked out a hair and he said, ma'am, there's a cat hair in my, not pasta, I think it was just a sort of British meal. And that stuck with me and that's in the film, you know, and all things like that are in, in the film. So... It's very much observational from a, a kind of the narrative is observing other characters in situ and him especially was my brother. The other characters, where do they come from? I don't know. Where do they come from, Joe? Tell me. I don't know. Oh, one came from a woman across the road. One was a woman across the road. So were, who was holding a gold party. <laughs> You know what a gold party is? So, like a Tupperware party yeah. or, or, you or, know. or an Avon party. And we were we were in Barry, which is where I was born, oh, quite some time ago now. And across the road from where my, my mum and dad lived, there there was this family, this couple, uh, with this huge white Mercedes back. They always had this immaculate white Mercedes. And then old Mercedes. Yeah, an old one, but it, it was great. And I said to my dad one day, I said, Oh, that car is great. If, if he ever wants to sell it, let me know, you know. And then so one day, my dad from me and said, oh, he wants to sell it. So we went there and we went to see him across the road. It's a terrace street, right? And we, we knocked the door and this woman who I knew from my childhood came to the door and I said, oh, is, uh, is your husband there? Because we're interested in the car. And she said, no, he, he's not. He's not in, but coming in, coming in, coming in. And... So he went in and she led us into the front room where there was about 12, 14 women with all dressed up and made up and all with, you know, kind of like, what's the word, um, what's the word to describe it? Bling. They were full <laughs> of bling, you know. And there was a there was a dog there with a kind of rhinestone collar, <laughs> poodle, right? And all these, and, they were, and she was trying to flog them gold, you know. <laughs> And in the hallway, to it, was huge stacks of Spanish beer because this guy was smuggling Spanish beer <laughs> in this Mercedes somehow. <laughs> he was going to Spain or going. And so I thought, this is amazing. But, you know, all, I'm, all we're there for is to ask him how much you want for the car. And we got involved in this world of gold and, and sort of bling and poodles and beer. And I thought, <laughs> Wow, you know, this is, and that's where Beverly came from. This this woman was was obviously upwardly mobile, and she she was a sort of minor businesswoman, and her husband was a sort of, you know, under the under the counter car boot sell selling cheap Spanish beer. So it was it's a great basis for a character. <laughs> so that's how Beverly developed, really. Next. <laughs> <laughs> That leads me on to onto the evolution of Beryl as a character. Um, and um, at one point, Beryl tells a very direct tale about her love for art and drawing. Mm. And knowing you both, I'd say that, uh, well, particularly yourself, Joanna, uh, for love for drawing. 
uh, it could be it could be you speaking. And obviously, Les, I, I've I've heard of your um, your bread based art antics in the past and things like that. Um, you know, you you're both very immersed in the world in the in the world of art. And can you tell me about have you found yourselves turning into Beryl or Beryl turning into yourselves over the years? Well, I think Joe, Joe, some, you know, some of the scenes, some of the images in the scene of basically Joe's experience of when she was young, she used to draw some everywhere, including over everything on the wall. That's where that image comes from. That Yes, the, in the film, spoiler alert, in the film where little Beryl is drawing on the walls, that was me. So I, I drew on... I'm, Hippie parents, you see, they let me. And my my bedroom is completely covered with drawings. Um, so, right. And so that was that was true. And also in the film, spoiler alert, um, Beryl is caught drawing her teacher in the nude. Well, that happened to me too. Um, but uh, so it was quite. But it was slightly different. I draw. I drew our teacher in the bath nude, but I didn't do a bath in the film. So that's autobiographical. And the woman had holes in her stockings. With her, her hair, yeah, hair and that was true as well. Oh my god! So that yeah. was true. She but her name true. wasn't Mrs. Mouse. Oh no, don't say I'm not going to say it. Oh, okay. So we we re, <laughs> we recushioned the Mrs. Mouse, which is the name of the violin teacher in my school. Right? <laughs> but I think after so many years of doing um, adverts, I was absolutely desperate to do my own art. So I think it was slightly autobiographical because I. I was feeling, even though I was creating all the time and doing lovely drawings, um, it was always for somebody else and selling a product, or and it was somebody else's vision. And and you end up just being a service industry, really, because um, you can you can make as many suggestions and why don't we do it this way and perhaps we could do it that way and some get taken on board and some don't, but ultimately it's somebody else's idea and you're 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 just doing that as best you can. So uh, I was a little bit desperate to actually make another film and, uh, and make it about art, you know, because we're both, we both absolutely love art. And, and I, I love, I absolutely love drawing. I mean, I, I just would be happy to draw all day and just draw, draw, draw. Um, and so th that's my background, just being quite solitary and drawing. So animation's perfect. <laughs> Um, Les is from the fine art background, but again, he is an artist and from, like you say, he made a bread floor. <laughs> yeah, well, I, didn't, I, mean, I, I, floor. Moved, I moved um, it from like fine art and living in New York. I got involved. I, I think I made my first Super 8 film uh, walking from my apartment to, to the college because I went, I went to Rutgers University. Um, I got obsessed then with you know, the the immediacy of making films, you know. So then when I came back to, to Britain, I, 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 the first job I got, well, the second job I got was um, teaching in a, in a technical college in North London, South, Southgate. And they had a TV studio there. I mean, they had an actual TV studio, which is like, so... And then people teaching that who would just sort of be like little BBC people would sort of just teach them out what that meant. And there was a mixer and director and camera people on dollies. So all the whole gubbins was there, you know, it was like, and I thought, oh, great. Well, what they're not doing, though, is actually 
doing anything creative. They weren't like writing a little script and then trying to kind of put it together. So I got involved in that and everybody seemed to love it. So did I. So then um, I was teaching motor mechanics in another part of the college, right? For one day. And I said... Um, no, you, you weren't teaching motor mechanics. You were teaching motor mechanics students. Well, they were <laughs> potential motor mechanics. Right? Yeah, I know, but you weren't teaching motor mechanics. Right, but because I, I, I was... Because I, I, I taught art there too. I taught Joanna drawing in that very place. Right? Uh, and, and I did taught ceramics and all this. But these, this, this, uh, these motor mechanic potentials <laughs> were quite... Quite, quite um, lively, lively people. So I said, "Have you ever done any animation?" And they said, "No, no." You know, we had we had a camera there, and I said, "Oh, all right. Well, so write a little thing, do a little, make a little ad of your own on anything you want. Just make an ad." And these these uh, they were like 18, 19, 20 year olds, and they did, and they they made model animation, stop frame. They did, you know, like it was incredible. They just did it, you know. Because I didn't know anything about it. I was just saying, oh, just do that, and this is how you do it. But I didn't really know anything about animation. And, of course, down the road, she was doing, Joanna was doing a, a degree in graphics and doing animation. So she was feeding me stuff back, you know, saying, like, why don't you just try this? Or this is how you do that. Or, and I would do it myself as well. I would animate, you know, uh, little bits and pieces, dogs and People like that, things like that, you know. And then, and these people just so then a job came up in uh, Middlesex, and I went there and did part-time teaching filmmaking and animation, basic, very basic animation you know, ideas, basically. You know. So that's how I got into it, and it's basically the same way as Joe did, you know, with through an experience of it. So writing a film about an artist is something that. It, it kind of becomes a, a sort of a second nature to write a Beryl's struggle as this as this artist. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, but the fact of, of uh, the best thing I ever did in my life and all my friends would go, was go to art college. I mean, you know, fantastic. You could go there and you first day you arrive, they stick you in a room with a drawing board and a piece of paper and then a naked woman walks in and you've got <laughs> And you just sit there silent, everybody, and just start drawing, and nobody says anything. It's like, what is this? You know, and it was like, and the experience of all that is amazing. You know, if you don't, if you just don't do anything creative, whatever it is, then you don't have that kind of uh, experience of doing something of your own and expressing yourself. And that's, for me, that's the greatest thing in life, you know. And the more people do it, the better. But we were lucky to be able to go to college and do it, right? Yeah. Did I answer the question? Certainly did, and some. Um, the, the film takes us everywhere. We, we go from Wales to uh, a very specific part of Wales, the art college, talking of art college. Oh, Newport, yes. Oh, Newport. <laughs> a nice nod to anyone who's, uh, who's been to Newport there. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, we go to uh, Hollywood, um, we go to Moscow at one yeah. point uh, as well. Um, in your research, did you actually go to Moscow? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we did. Course. We did. Yeah, and and uh, that's, that's sort of why that is there, because we went to um, an animation festival in Moscow. We were with invited. The, with the last that. film. 
And um, and so we, we were like, oh, my God. And we had to look around Moscow because it was always a dream to go there. And we visited Lenin's tomb. <laughs> and so we had already thought that we would quite like to have Lenin in our film. <laughs> so we went in to audition him. And I had my sketchbook because I thought, well, while I'm here, I might as well do some drawing. And we were in a little queue and you go in through the front door and, um, and then you go in a sort of circle around, around him and, and out, out again. And so I was drawing and, of course, I got told off because you're not allowed to draw. No, anymore. no. That, what, what happened is before you go in there, you're not allowed to take any photographic thing. Oh, yes, you get so stripped So you've got to leave your cameras yes. with the guards and all that. So, and, of course, that was the first thing. You thought, oh, man, we didn't know this. We went in and then uh, we sent to a guard, you know, there's guards in there. Can, can she draw? Can she draw? He said, yes, but she can't stop. She has to keep moving. Oh, that's right. Yes, she has to, to keep, keep moving. So she was walking. doing this. She was, doing this, she was animating <laughs> herself and the drawing as she walked around, you know, and it was like Lenin sat there. You know, he was lady. so handsome. He was really handsome. Well, yeah. I mean, so it was it was a great experience. So um, <clears throat> I guess, I don't know whether I'd written that scene before we went there. I don't think, I think we just sort of vaguely thought about it. And then and then we went to Gum. Um, which is opposite. Gum um, is the, the department store across Red Square where all the top communists, the hierarchy, used to shop there, <laughs> you know, and then it kind of, uh, I don't know what happened. But now it's like full of designer. Gucci and things. Yeah, you know, all the kind of major things are in there. But there's we, we were staying with a, um, a, a Russian woman producer who was um, – Doing animate, animated films that that your mate uh, animated one, the Tchaikovsky one. Right? Oh, Barry Purvis. Yeah, he did one. He worked with this woman. Well, we we she showed us around uh, Moscow, and it was great, you know, because she she took us one day to uh, the, the exterior of Ljubljana Jail, you know, the prison, it's like where Stalin locked up all his like foes and people, and she's. So he said, oh, there's, it's going to be televised and we're all going to be, anybody who had their family um, basically uh, executed or imprisoned by, first of all, the, uh, the Nazis, and secondly, um, Stalin, basically, are coming and they're going to read out for 20 seconds of their experience and it'll be live. So do you want to come and see it? So we did. So we just... Stood outside this massive uh, prison square, and this massive queue of people basically read out what had happened to their family. You know, how they were all kind of bumped off, basically, and they, and it was televised nationally. So it's a sort of, I think, um, you're trying to make recompense for what happened, not only during Stalin but after until. Um, uh, I guess, uh, what was the name of the guy? Yeltsin came along and kind of liberated things a bit. So yes. it's quite moving. We're diverse. So that's how we got, got to go to uh, to Lenin's tomb. And it was a brilliant experience for us that uh, we'd already, I think we'd already written the scene. Hadn't we? There's a moment in the film which we, we spoke about beforehand, which uh, appears to be a nod to to the snowman. It's But it's a very tongue-in-cheek, very uh, obviously... The, the whole idea of um, of Beverly, this mad, obsessed child who joins 
the Communist Party in order to get a free ticket to uh, uh, to Russia uh, is is uh, accompanied by this uh, this very comedic vision uh, of uh, of Lenin in the film. Was that was that uh, was that on purpose? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't really on purpose. I mean, I we 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 did it because we thought um, that the the idea was that they would fly off and fly into Gum and then have Poroshki eat eat the cake. But uh, I chopped the eating the cake out because I just thought I can't do any more drawing. I've got to chop that scene out. So we chopped that scene out. So then we ended up making more of the flight. So these are how things happen. So it ended up having more importance than it originally was meant to have and then when we were doing it we were thinking oh this is a bit snowman but it's lenin well instead yeah. of I, instead I, of a snowman yeah, something, <laughs> something went, went wrong along the way because it, when you if you if you read the narrative of that whole thing basically she was obsessed with you know stuffing and and, and taxidermy and mausoleums and all that and of course lenin was the everybody knows that lenin's in the tomb so she did, in the film, she does join a, the young communists in Wales because they, she knows that, that every year they, 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 you can, they organise a bus trip to Moscow to see Lenin, right? They, that's, that, was, uh, that was the reality. But in addition, Beverly dreams these things, even though she didn't get to go. She does dream there, and that so that is a dream sequence in a sense. Yeah, that whole going into Moscow, in reality, was that they they she never got there because she, the bus only only went as far as East Berlin, which is then a you know in the east. So there's two things going on there. One's a bit of bit of what you call tongue in cheek fantasy, you know, which um, and instead of saying, "Are we nearly there yet?" which is what Beverly says to Lenin right, when they're flying over. The, the, the actual line was uh, basically Lenin speaking, and he's saying to her, look down there, they're marching for me, you know, but we cut that out and Joe, and Joe, Joe put that, the uh, tongue-in-cheek thing. You know, we, you know kid, every kid says that, don't they, right? Yeah. So it was a bit of, bit of kind of uh, light-hearted and... Uh, but underneath it, you know. Yes, that. it is a homage to the snowman. Oh, it isn't. <laughs> I'm glad we cleared it off, if, if indeed we did. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, since the last Beryl film, animation uh, production has changed dramatically, um, even since Family Ties. And I understand at the beginning of experimenting with uh, affairs of the art, you experimented with digital paper, Joanna, uh, in the yeah. early stages. Uh, which, which for me uh, was that's like that's by like Bob Dylan going electric. It's people must have been shouting Judas at you and everything. Um, can you let us know how you found the the right technique for uh, affairs of the art? Well, um, I bought a Cintiq. What I wanted to do was I wanted to make a film that looked hand drawn but was actually digital, because I wanted to be modern, um, but to try and <laughs> uh, experiment and stretch it so that it, it felt organic and it had the had the sort of organic feel of pencil on paper. So I animated using TV paint 
for about um, six six months actually. Um, but as I was doing it, I was because there was no great pressure with the deadline. I was able to 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 learn and play around with the software, um, which I really enjoyed. But I've just found that um, the the process of animating digitally is very different to when when you're actually drawing on paper. Um, and one of the big differences is you can you can see your animation as you're going along. And uh, <clears throat> so as I was animating, I was looking back, flicking back, and then you could flick back, flick back. And so you could end up seeing the whole sequence as you're going along. And I stopped. I, um, I just found it, it's a, a very different way of animating because you weren't being there was a no there was at no point that you would stop and then um, assess what you had animated with a with a fresh pair of eyes and say actually that bit's not working the rhythm isn't working I need to redo that bit or something um, because when you're animating on paper you're just animating you get, and you're whooshing through and then you test it and then you see it moving for the first time in sequence and then you're able to judge it with a fresh pair of eyes straight away. And you can see immediately what works and what doesn't work. And so that's what I was missing. I was missing not being able to do that. And also um, the actual, um, the, the physical act of drawing wasn't as pleasurable as um, drawing on the Cintiq as it is on a piece of paper. I didn't actually realize how much I enjoy the act of drawing and uh, the, the, the way that you can play with the line and the pencil, everything is very, it's the pencil, you can do everything with a pencil, um, and, but you can just do it with one hand and it's, it's instant. It's from the brain to the pencil to the paper and it's easy. When you work digitally, you have to sort of plan what you're going to do because you have to press buttons um, in order to, do what you're going to do. So it's less intuitive for me. Having said that, different people that we were working with in the studio, in the studio who were all super young, who've been brought up with digital, you know, animation, they were absolutely, they found it intuitive working that way, you know, because that's what they were used to. So it's all swings and roundabouts really. But um, anyway, I decided to go back to paper two re two reasons. One is that I, Les could see that I wasn't enjoying it. And he said, well, why don't you just get your light box out and draw on paper again? And I felt it was going back in time and I didn't want to, but I thought, yes. And also um, I got a letter from um, Regina Pessoa, um, wonderful animator, who had heard that I was working <laughs> in digitally. And she wrote to me and said, no, don't. You have to stay on paper. You must. You must. And uh, so I thought, oh, no, what will I do? What will I do? Okay, all right, Regina and Les, I'll go back to the paper. So that's what I did. And then I was, bing, I was happy again. So that, <laughs> that's how that happened. Yeah, there's one little thing that Joanne mentioned, which is not only all the things that she said about the movement, the act, and, and, and but also the, the kind of uh, quality of a, a pencil in the line is is textural you know it's like you can and you can alter it immediately instinctively and do all these wonderful things just with a pencil whereas to try and 
go from that to uh, a Cintiq is like a, a huge step. And you can, Joe could not get the quality of wine mm-hmm. since she was working closely with, what was the name of the woman? Elodie, Elodie. She, she called them brush, brushes. Yes, there were different, we designed so many different brushes. Uh, she um, just couldn't get. But we just couldn't get it right. So, uh, I mean, maybe now, maybe now I could probably do it. I mean, uh, but but uh, at the time, yeah. I was spending so long trying to get it looking like a pencil that... Uh, I thought, well, what, sod it, I'll just use a pencil. <laughs> yeah. It's something to be said for the sort of sensory experience of, of, of a crinkling paper and, and, and holding as well. Oh, yeah. Um, see, there's also, just to, to show up in your, mm. when we were doing the colour designs, right, because I, I, I do those, and I do them on pencil, with pencil, right, Carol Dash pencil, on paper, exactly the same thing. And there's something about the quality of that and the texture you can get and the subtleties in the colour that is quite difficult to do digitally. I mean, I suppose there are people who can do it like effortlessly. But I think the, the colours and textures of the film, speaking about them, does open up uh, a, a fantastic anecdote from uh, uh, that Leonie Sharrock tells about colouring in um, uh, at family size. Using a very a very specific um, method of colouring in, which yeah, made, yeah. Um, made visitors rather easy, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> yes, we had. Um, uh, I don't really remember, but because we, we were working on frosted cell, yeah, yeah. and so the the small areas we would colour in Karen Dash, but the larger areas. We were you. We had to use things to like to spread it across, yeah, and so we had. Yeah. Um, we had paper, um, like tissue paper, but then Leone came came up with this fantastic idea of using tampons. So she had, <laughs> so so she had this sort of little row of tampons um, at the top of her table with all different colours, and so she would reach and do them. And then, but then one day we had um, some school, school, like like thirteen year olds, you know, come and visit, and we were showing them round and then I, I thought, what are they all staring at? And they were all absolutely transfixed at, at Leone's row of disgusting looking multicolored tampons. You know, they were like horrified. These young boys were like looking going, Oh my God. <laughs> what are they for? You know? <laughs> but it, it's the same thing. That is that, that exactly the same thing as I, I was just mentioning, you know, to, to achieve a certain there's nothing quite like a pencil. There isn't, is there? You know, it's just like... So what the process was that Les would do the, um, the colour setup. So he would use Caran d'Ache and paper. And then what we would do is try and match that in the computer with our wonderful Mia, Rose Goddard, um, who put... She, she did... She was my sidekick, really, for, for at least two. She was two. great, yeah. She was fantastic, was you know. And um, and so there was just me and her at the beginning, you know, tra- her working on TV paint, <clears throat> putting, scanning in the drawings, doing the colour. Um, so she would have Les's uh, colour setup guide track guide, yeah. guide, and then would try her hardest, you know, to to make it look as hand drawn as possible. So the way we did it was because it was com- it is completely different. Everything was hand 
coloured on the on the Cintiq each thing. That we, you know, it wasn't a fill button or anything like that. It was hand, hand done. But in order to get the texture, we we had scanned in lots of different textures and then and would then feed that into the colour as well to try and uh, get the colour more textured. So we experimented with that. Um, so. You get to play yeah. with light then as well. I noticed in the film you get to play with light. There's a moment with uh, a, a pigeon hut's being made or a summer's day or a dark front room at Granny's house. I don't want to give away too much about the film, but those moments have got a... There's, a, there's an added layer of richness, which the digital uh, technique, uh, I suppose, supplies with a lot more ease, I suppose. That's right. We were able, we were able to play with things like that, um, and so like, Mia would shift over to After Effects, so we, we used TV paint and After Effects. And um, we also used Fran Breslin, who worked, who's worked with us for on the last, oh, no, she didn't work on the last film, but she's worked on many, many different ads. And so she was able to come in and spend time with us as well. So she did a big chunk of work. Um, and Mia did as well, you know, on the After Effects. And so between the two of them, they created all these things that really you couldn't do if it was just <laughs> paper, you know, drawing on paper and colour on paper. So we were able to play with light. And so that was like an added bonus. That was lovely. Mm, fantastic. Um, so we've we've mentioned S4C, we've mentioned uh, Channel 4, all these uh, channels and institutions that have uh, supported um, Beryl's journey throughout the years. And it's the, we, we, we find ourselves in Canada now with the National Film Board mm. uh, uh, helping uh, Beryl's uh, new journey. How has it been working with the National Film Board of Canada making a very Welsh story? <coughs> well, I think they knew, they knew very well the character of Beryl and, and where it all came from. And um, uh, the problems being obviously COVID happened. We, the idea was we were going to do most of the film here and finish off in Canada to post-production sound, sound design, dubbing, and and um, color grading, but you know we we were basically prevented. That didn't happen, so we ended up doing everything here apart from the from the sound design, right? So we never actually got to go to Canada and actually participate in a big institution and meet all the people and do that, you know, which is unfortunate, really. But um, there's, we'll go eventually. Yeah, we couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> yeah. So we had to sort of improvise in the end and uh, get get our own sound dubbers and our own, you know, uh, colour graders and all that, but who were wonderful. They were great, actually. I mean, you know, considering they are, you know, everybody had to work with masks on and screens <laughs> between it. You know, it was an amazing get. You had the, the temperature thing before you went in the room and you had a <laughs> it was, um, I'm that probably would have happened if it had gone to Canada anyway in those circumstances, but yeah. we couldn't even fly anywhere. So, we very, that, we very near, we were only like a couple of weeks away, yeah. you know, before lockdown. And we, we got the visa and everything, you know, we said, Shall we buy the ticket? Shall we? We were that close, and then I, I said, Let's buy the ticket, no, we'll, said, we'll don't, don't. and he said, I don't worse. think, and I was going, Oh, it'll be all right, and mm. of course, it wasn't, so uh, it was lucky actually <laughs> we didn't go. And it's still we can still, yeah. still do that, you know. But it's but it's um uh, obviously fantastic to be able to work with the National Film Board because they are the National Film Board, you know, and what a wonderful 
um, reputation they've got. And uh, so it's. it's well, I mean, a, we had one here, like, <laughs> yeah, I know we got yeah. the BFI, but. They're a bit like the BBC, aren't they? The National Film Board, you know, the, B- the BBC and the BFI all rolled into one. Sort <laughs> of, you know. I, I get it's, it's funny because Maybe. it was a Scotsman who, who sort of came up with the idea, really, wasn't it? <laughs> Grierson, John Grierson, yes. who ended up actually recording his TV programmes in Cardiff <laughs> years later. And he set up the Newport Film, film School. school. It all comes full circle. Yeah. <laughs> he, he did set it up. <laughs> and I did, meet, I did meet him once. So uh, you, you find yourself in the, um, I don't know whether it would be unfortunate, fortunate uh, situation of releasing the film during a pandemic. Of course, that means that the film get, gets seen by potentially a lot more people. It's more accessible because people can tune in from home if the film makes its way to festivals which um, are, are not geo-locked. Um, but at the same time, you're, you might potentially be missing out on the experience of attending a festival um, within the next two or three years, however long uh, the lifespan of, of the film, the festival lifespan of the film is. Uh, what are your thoughts and feelings on, on being a filmmaker at this time? Yeah. Um, it's pretty devastating, I have to say, after working on the film for so long um, and not being able to travel with it, because um, making an animated film is so, such a long, laborious process that the big carrot dangling is um, going to film festivals, you know, at the end. That's what, that's what kept me going anyway. And so not being able to go is really sad. It's a disaster, really. <laughs> because, you know, not only those things of just getting your film in front of a live audience and instant feedback and applause and all that sort of if they like or it. <laughs> yeah, right. But but meeting up with all the other filmmakers that you haven't seen since the last festival or and mingling and talking, that it's a fantastic well, you know, you've been to film mm-hmm. festivals. It's a, the most amazing thing ever. And and you you to, to see all these other wonderful films and talk with the people who make them and um, meet people you haven't seen for a year or so. This way, I mean, it's all virtual. Mm. I mean, I mean I, personally, I think the delight of going to a film festival is when you go into a cinema and the lights go down and you don't know what you're going to watch mm. and you don't budge, you don't move, you, you watch all of the films and then you get up when the lights come on and you go out. And you have watched all these films that you wouldn't have chosen to watch, maybe, you know, and you've seen films that you thought would probably be not very good, but they ended up being fantastic. And, oh, there's the person over there who made it. And look at them. Oh, my God, they made that, you know. So you, it's just, it's just such a lovely, surprising, educating experience going to a film festival and, and piecing it all together. Um, so we've been doing a lot of online festivals, which initially you know i was thinking oh this is it's never going to be as good you know but some things are much better you know with the online stuff i think i think that um being able to watch things at your own time is really nice um and uh all of the go- being able to see all of the talks um and the panel discussions for me have been the best thing you know they've been absolutely fantastic um and of course, those things that you can do online, you wouldn't be able to do unless you had gone to a film festival. So 
it does enable a whole load of people to be able to experience those festival treats without leaving their living room. I think what doesn't work as well is the actual experience of watching the films because... On a small screen. It's on a small... It does, I don't think it matters really for me whether it's a small screen or not. I think it's because um, when you go to a film festival, you've taken the week off work and you go and you concentrate and you're there to watch films. But I, I, I know personally that I've gone on all these online festivals, but I haven't stopped doing my daily things. I've been multitasking. <laughs> so I've whizzed through things, you know, and I've skipped stuff. And so I feel like I have missed, it's, it's not the same. That, that oh, I'm often. No, I think, I think that what you just said about going to a cinema, there's something incredibly special about a darkening mm. auditorium. Mm. And then this, I mean, we just spent like, what well, we haven't just spent it, it was six months ago now. We, when we did the sound dev, we were, we did it, you know, we added kind of latest Dolby this, and we were thinking about, well, there'll be three speakers over there. This is going to, you know, we, we spent all this dough doing this thing. And it had, actually, all, we're just going to see it on a little tiny screen. <laughs> and, we, and it's totally different. It is. It is. I know you can stop it, go back and look at it as an animator and go, oh, that's what they did. All these wonderful, forensically kind of inspired ways of taking it apart and looking at it. That's not quite the same, though, in a room of like a thousand people in a dark space, all experiencing it together and, and feeling the kind of feedback and the applause. It's just not the same, is it? You know? it, is, it is absolutely admirable, though, how all of the festivals have managed to uh, yeah, switch from live to online and all really successfully. You know, all the festivals that I've visited online have all had different things that have been strong. You know, and you think, oh, that's really good doing it that way. On, I mean, you, Steve, I don't know how you managed it really, because I mean, Manchester was fantastic online. It was really successful, smooth. And you think of all the technical glitches and things that can possibly go wrong. And well, and my my secret weapon is is Jennifer Hall. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> But it, but again, obviously, there's 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 plenty going on. I mean, Cardiff as well. Uh, Cardiff is wonderful, amazing, amazing job as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's I, been. I'm amazed that they managed to. Yeah. You you all managed to do it. You know. Yeah, just, that's um, all. Hell. You know, especially the so last minute as well. Yeah, it's like, is it going to be live? Is it? Is it the uh, technical problems that we we've, we've come across when we first started doing a few presentations, where I think. We, you know, the things going wrong and the interrupting and all that, that's the, the, the downside of it, you know, where you can't actually get close to anybody and, and, and things interrupt or the sound's not right or you lose the sound and you've got to pick all those things. Um, you know, what used to happen when a projector broke down, you know, <laughs> you go, oh. some guy would rush out and do it and splice it together. I mean, that was going back a bit, but basically, there's not that, it's not the same experience. So you know that as much as I do, right? I mean, it isn't, is it? Yeah. Well, uh, I, I, I suppose there is perhaps hope that um, given that films have, uh, films like this have at least 18 months uh, of, a, of a festival circuit that we, we may have the opportunity to see uh, affairs of the art on the big screen, get the anticipation as the lights go down and, 
uh, appreciate the sound uh, as well. And if not, I'm, I'm certain it will end up on a, on a big screen uh, by hook or by crook, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, um, we learn more about Beryl in this film than any film prior to, uh, I, I would say. So will we be seeing more of Beryl in the future? No, we won't. I want to make another film. I want to make another film, but it's going to be 30 seconds long. It's going to be drawn, no backgrounds. No, it's going no to have colour. my backgrounds in them. Right? No, no backgrounds. And just animation flying around. She wants to do a bit sandy all along. I just again, want to do another you know, pretend. She's going to yeah. use a cat or something. <laughs> a cat. No, she's going to take a country, you know. Just, Am I? Well, you, you said you were. Oh. Take a country like, I just read a book on Napoleon. I, I never knew much. I, I'm, I love history, right? I read this book. You gave it to me. She bought it for me. It's a massive book. I did not realise just how much of a, what's the word, a dictatorial, bloody fascist, you know. I mean, the guy was like, what, what they did in, during his, uh, his reign, if you like, to other, kind they took over the whole of Europe and they basically destroyed everything. Everything they got hold of, they destroyed. And it was Napoleon who did it. And somehow or other, the French have got away with it in the sense of it's been because we're British, we 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 slag off what happened in, in our empire, which is what Britannia was about. But I've never actually seen um, anything else that did the same thing with their own imperial past. And so uh, we thought at one point maybe we'll take about five countries and do do a kind <laughs> of retrospective of each one just with a national emblem, you know, because they still, oh, there's a bloody cockerel. You have to animate a cockerel instead of a bloody uh, bulldog, right? <laughs> That's the, the, the emblem. But, I mean, these are all ideas. I didn't know we had to do that. But I, I've, I suppose that uh, there's a lot of feeling in Britannia because we're British and, and we were there in the sense of the tail end of the empire. So, well, I was anyway, you weren't, but. Uh, it's very meaningful that film, not because, not only because the animation is great and there's no backgrounds, <laughs> but um, you know, it's part of our our own heritage, part of our own history. And uh, I just think whether people in France and, and even in the states, because they're colonialists as well, but particularly, but all the Europeans did it: the Dutch, the Spanish, the Portuguese. You know, the Germans got in, the Belgians, you know. They all did it, you know, in this sort of horrible way. I mean, that was what was good about that great film by um, the two Belgian felt animators, what they called. Oh, The Magnificent Cake. Yeah. Yes, yeah, fantastic. We, we, I, thought, I thought that was wonderful. That yes, film. it's brilliant. Because it did, in a sort of very subtle way, it was very critical of what happens in, in Congo. Yes, it was, yes. With yeah. Belgium, you know. Yeah. And that's the only time I've ever seen anything in animation that's really come across as, uh, in the same way as I think Britannia might might come across, as a crit critique of British imperialism. And, and that film, that for me, was great. So, so uh, Beryl's story's yeah. well and truly over, but you, you do have uh, urges to create films that, that do address societal issues. Well, yeah, I think, yeah, we've always done that. I think that, that uh, 
you know, we find a lot of the time watching films, I mean, I can speak for myself, you can say the same thing probably. There's some of them are just all about technique with no kind of content, with no kind of issues, with no, no provocation, with no, you know, you're not expressing an idea that you feel very intimately yourself about something. A lot of animation isn't to do with that, you know, and people get pissed off if you mention issues, but um, like somebody said to us the other day that the, the, the feminist movement and what's going on now, especially in women, in, in the areas of, of, of work and politics, uh, um, Barrel was part of that, in a sense, the, the first films and were about women's issues and all the rest of it. So I think we just like a bit of kind of, call it what you like, politics or issues or... One of the, the best things, because you mentioned Britannia, I think one of the best things about Britannia and its message is that it's quite evergreen. Yeah. It was, it was uh, I, I saw it got quite a lot of traction on Twitter. Every now and then somebody else puts it on Twitter. <laughs> yes, and everyone fine, fine. It. Yeah, <laughs> What's happening now? So it, it still has its place years later. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that must be rather... Uh, gratifying to see that the films still have films still have uh, audiences years later. Yes, that is, oh, that is. that's, that's that is really exciting. Yeah, yeah, because the tendency is that you know, like you you go to festivals and see these films, and they, like you said, they have a shelf life, and then they're sort of they disappear, and it's only when a, a, an individual filmmaker does a retrospective that you see them again. You know, so uh, that's a shame, really, isn't it? So you've got to make something really enduring and, and, and powerful and available. And we think, you know, because that's what we we do is, is sort of there are issues, whatever they are. There's some kind of, you know, uh, thing that you talk about and think about later, not only just experience it at the time. But also using humour to pull people in. Yes. <laughs> got to have a laugh. Got to have a laugh. Well, it's it's uh, it's a good model, and it's one that um, you know Beryl Productions been using very well for for many years. <laughs> uh, and the new film Affairs of the Art certainly is uh, one that is using it. Um, Joanna Quinn, Les Mills, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today and for letting us know more. Uh, well, about everything, really. I think we've covered everything. Haven't yeah, we? Sorry, yeah. Lydia. It's a pleasure. We haven't seen anybody pleasure. for so long, or spoken to anybody. So, <laughs> sorry, verbal diarrhea. <laughs> thank you very much for talking to squiggly today okay. okay bye then bye then bye. bye that was joanna quinn and les mills the team behind the stupendous affairs of the art of course playing in competition at this year's annecy festival and it's been playing all sorts of places i mean it's it's the talk of the industry at the moment like people have been waiting for this film for ages any chance you can get to see it whichever festival it plays at near you Go for it. Check it out. It's uh, it's great fun. You won't be disappointed. Definitely. Slightly disappointed if it does indeed turn out to be the last outing for Beryl, as suggested there. Mm. You know, this is a, a character that, for as few outings as she has had, like if you were to kind of add it all up, you know, all of those films, it's, it's surprising just how larger than life and how much of a rounded character she is like she feels like a kind of mascot of animation in a way definitely a mascot of british animation absolutely a mascot of british animation yeah 
I, I, the, the thing about what I love about these films and Joanna Quinn's films in particular is that you can just talk about them films because you love them so much. You don't have to do much research. You don't have to do much kind of, you know, we're, we're both passionate about the films and so we can talk about the films. And that was evidence for us when we did that uh, Secrets of British Animation show three or four years ago for, Chan- for, for BBC Four. I don't know if you remember. And we sat in that room for hours Mm. I don't know about you, but I did a lot of research beforehand and I was like saying things based on the questions that we got emailed ahead of time and so we carefully researching. And then when we just kicked back and talked about Joanna Quinn, yeah. that was the bit that got that got added to the documentary. Yeah. And that wasn't rehearsed or anything. And that was that was the kind of and that's because, yeah, it's yeah, we just love these films so much. Um but I think it's not about it's not about Beryl um, you know, uh, anything that she's done, Britannia. I, I mean, Britannia. What a sure. what a masterpiece. So I think any film that they go on to make, um, Joanna and Les. Well, Squiggly's looking forward to it certainly. Indeed. So I guess that was our um, our Annecy special without being able to be there. I mean, you know, Annecy is the big thing that's happening at the moment, and I'm glad that you know there is stuff going on that we're able to kind of check out remotely while uh, we wait for this thing to to run its course. Uh, I've enjoyed it. Like I say, a bit clunky with the old UX, but hey, you got to take that with it, I guess. So yeah, lots of good stuff to check out. If we, um, Do you think it'll still be available to people next week? I think so, but if it's not, then uh, support your, your local animation festival online, and, and if it's there, yeah. we'll give it a watch. But um, yeah... It, it it may or may not be uh, when, when this goes up. Uh, it's not been made very clear on the Annecy website, has it? <laughs> um, just to come full circle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, certainly um, some recommendations to check out. Like, um, like that documentary, If it, uh, I imagine that will be doing the rounds that uh, Clay dreams. Definitely. Um, and, you know, the short films you were talking about. You know, plenty of festivals to come. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Hope you're all doing okay. Thank you, of course, again to Joanna and Les for uh, talking about their wonderful film. And, uh, yeah, I guess that's us for the summer. Uh, We'll be back soon, probably the autumn, if I was going to put a bet on it, unless something (laughs) exciting happens in the interim that uh, warrants another podcast. But until then, be sure to keep checking out squiggly.com, and we're on Twitter, at squiggly on Instagram at Squiggly Animation and Facebook.com slash Squiggly Magazine. It's all there. <laughs> it's all great. It's all animation. I've been Ben Mitchell at Ben L. Mitchell on Twitter. I don't go on Twitter anymore. <laughs> I can't do it. I'll, I'll, I'll be back one day. But <laughs> for what it's worth, I'm on Instagram. If that if anyone likes pictures of records <laughs> at Ben L. Mitchell. <laughs> and Steve at Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson. Still there. And Manchester Animation Festival. Yeah, we've got a yeah call for entries, Manchester Animation Festival. Uh, call for entries open until the 30th of July. It's free to enter on manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk. So if you've got a short film, a student film, a commissioned film, uh, you can enter for free, uh, like I say, via the website. And if you are a writer for animation, a storyboard artist, character animator or character designer... You can nominate yourself or you can nominate a friend or somebody that you've worked with for one of our Industry Excellence Awards. Take a little look on our website, look at the beautiful awards by McKinnon and Saunders uh, and uh, get those submissions in before the 30th of July. So yeah, it's manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk Wonderbar. Mm-hmm. 
Good stuff. Well, we'll be back soon, I'm sure. Until then, um, we'll be doing our animation one-to-one. -one. I think there's some more intimate animation coming up. And uh, yeah, I'm sure lots of other goodies along the way. Tell your friends. Get on it, guys. It's Tell been your 10 enemies. Years. <laughs> Not doing this for my health. <laughs> yeah, the opposite, in fact. Until next time. Happy animating. Toodle Pipski. <laughs> <laughs>